With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I know it's like asking a parent, you know, which child do you love the best? But... Who's your favorite character? Ooh. <laughs> I'm glad they aren't real so they can't look at me crazy. Um, let's see. Maverick. Maverick. And that's, I'm sorry, Star, but Maverick. <laughs> and I think I love Maverick so much is because Maverick has so many layers. Mm-hmm. Um, Maverick is trying Maverick is not what Maverick, according to society, Maverick shouldn't even be where he is. That's right. He's a statistic. You know, he's, a statist- he's a statistic in every sense of the word. He was a drug dealer. He was a gangbanger. But guess what? He's not anymore. And that's my favorite character because I wanted to show that young men who even get in those situations, they're not lost causes. That's right. They're not. That's right. If you put the right, put the right time into them, you put time into them, put them in the right direction, they can get their lives right. And so that, I think that's why he's my favorite. Um, also because I wanted to have a strong black father in a book. I, <laughs> um, so often there's this stereotype that black kids don't have dads, and that's not true for all of them. And there's a bigger stereotype that black kids who are poor don't have fathers. That's not always true. I know dads in my neighborhood. And I wanted that character to exist, and I wanted him to still be in his daughter's life, and I wanted him to be present, and I wanted him to be involved, and I wanted them to have a good relationship because I wanted to tear at that stereotype at least a little bit. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 9th, 2018. So I have been told the book club 
is back. Brand new book. Very excited because we are doing young adult literature. I think we have uh, neglected this area on the cows over the years. So I'm very excited uh, to be doing some young adult literature. Maybe we'll have uh, some young listeners. Uh, if we have any, particularly if we have any uh, black students uh, who have read this book in school uh, or just read it for leisure, uh, would be great to hear your thoughts, commentary, uh, on the text, if you had to read the book in school, uh, what was the discussion in class? It'd be great to hear that. Uh, the book we are reading, Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Uh, this book came out in 2017. This book wasn't just published in 2017. This was uh, like the smash hit young adult book of 2017. It spent 38 weeks in the number one position on the New York Times young young adult bestseller list, uh, I think it spent approximately fifty weeks uh, on their best young adult bestseller list total. Uh, so wide acclaim, it's being made into a major motion picture. I think even that has spawned some other accusations of racism, but it's being made into a major motion picture uh, starring. Amanda Stanberg. She is the non-white female who was in the Hunger Games. Uh, I believe it's going to be playing the lead role, uh, but has garnered lots of attention. Uh, one of the main reasons that we are reading this text, when I was talking about being indecisive on picking a new book, uh, a listener, an educator wrote in and shared that this book, along with another text, is very, very popular in schools and required reading for a lot of literature classes and that you see a lot of black students roaming the halls with this book and talking about this book. It's so popular. And she was concerned because the text has an quote unquote interracial relationship. Uh, and she was just concerned because because I think because of the popularity in terms of having so many white people endorse this book and talk about this book and recommend it in schools, uh, even though it was banned in a Texas school, uh, I think the end of 2017, I posted that article as well. Uh, but that was why she thought it might be a good selection to read and think about why such a book has become so popular and is getting such rave attention. Uh, Ms. Thomas is a black female. Uh, you heard her. That was her at the beginning of the program. And I want to be very clear. There are times that we've read books where I was very critical. We read Frantz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth. I was very critical from beginning to end of that book. Even in fact, I was critical before we even started reading it because I had read it in advance. But uh, I was very critical of that text. I think there have been some others that I did not enjoy very much. I have not read this book before, but from what I know about it, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this book either. So I'm saying that up front. And that's why I started with that audio segment. I think that is so important. I so appreciate it. That is black self-respect. The author Angie Thomas saying that the character Maverick is her favorite because she thought it was so important to emphasize black fathers and to show black males caring for their children, loving their children to kind of rip away at that racist stereotype. I so appreciate that. And I might even play that sound clip a few times as we venture through the book, just to remind myself and others, uh, just, I really appreciate it. I think there uh, are some great elements that she uh, wants to get across in the text, but but same standard that I have for anything else, anything that a whole lot of white people are excited about and like, oh, yeah, this is great, particularly if it's something about racism. I tend to step back with much more caution. 
we will go ahead and get started. Again, if we have any younger folks uh, who read the book, particularly in school, or even if you read it for leisure, definitely want to hear your views. If you have any folks, period, who read the book and you enjoyed it, thought it was constructive, want to hear that for sure. Let's all think critically. Enjoy. This is Angie Thomas, The Hate You Give, Context of White Supremacy. Harper Audio presents The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas Performed by Bonnie Turpin Part 1. When It Happens 1. I shouldn't have come to this party. I'm not even sure I belong at this party. That's not on some bougie shit either. There are just some places where it's not enough to be me. Either version of me. Big D's spring break party is one of those places. I squeezed through sweaty bodies and followed Kenya, her curls bouncing past her shoulders. A haze lingers over the room, smelling like weed, and music rattles the floor. Some rapper calls out for everybody to nay-nay, followed by a bunch of haze as people launch into their own versions. Kenya holds up her cup and dances her way through the crowd. Between the headache from the loud-ass music and the nausea from the weed odor, I'll be amazed if I cross the room without spilling my drink. We break out the crowd. Big D's house is packed wall to wall. I've always heard that everybody and their mama comes to his spring break parties. Well, everybody except me. But damn, I didn't know it would be this many people. Girls wear their hair colored, curled, laid, and slayed. Got me feeling basic as hell with my ponytail. Guys in their freshest kicks and sagging pants grind so close to girls they just about need condoms. My nana likes to say that spring brings love. Spring in Garden Heights doesn't always bring love, but it promises babies in the winter. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are conceived the night of Big D's party. He always has it on the Friday of spring break because you need Saturday to recover and Sunday to repent. Stop following me and go dance, star, Kenya says. People already say you think you all that. I didn't know so many mind readers lived in Garden Heights, or that people know me as anything other than Big Mav's daughter who works in the store. I sip my drink and spit it back out. I knew there would be more than Hawaiian punch in it, but this is way stronger than I'm used to. They shouldn't even call it punch, just straight up liquor. I put it on the coffee table and say, Folks kill me, thinking they know what I think. Hey, I'm just saying, you act like you don't know nobody because you go to that school. I've been hearing that for six years, ever since my parents put me in Williamson Prep. Whatever, I mumble. And it wouldn't kill you not to dress like... She turns up her nose as she looks from my sneakers to my oversized hoodie. That, 
Ain't that my brother's hoodie? Our brother's hoodie. Kenya and I share an older brother, seven. But she and I aren't related. Her mama is seven's mama, and my dad is seven's dad. Crazy, I know. Yeah, it's his. Figures. You know what else people saying, too? Got folks thinking you're my girlfriend. Do I look like I care what people think? No, and that's the problem. Whatever. If I'd known following her to this party meant she'd be on some extreme makeover star edition mess, I would have stayed home and watched Fresh Prince reruns. My Jordans are comfortable, and damn, they're new. That's more than some people can say. The hoodie's way too big, but I like it that way. Plus, if I pull it over my nose, I can't smell the weed. Well, I ain't babysitting you all night, so you better do something, Kenya says and scopes the room. Kenya could be a model, if I'm completely honest. She's got flawless dark brown skin. I don't think she ever gets a pimple. Slanted brown eyes and long eyelashes that aren't store-bought. She's the perfect height for modeling, too, but a little thicker than those toothpicks on the runway. She never wears the same outfit twice. Her daddy, King, makes sure of that. Kenya is about the only person I hang out with in Garden Heights. It's hard to make friends when you go to a school that's 45 minutes away and you're a latchkey kid who's only seen at her family's store. It's easy to hang out with Kenya because of our connection to Seven. She's messy as hell sometimes, though. Always fighting somebody and quick to say her daddy will whoop somebody's ass. Yeah, it's true, but I wish she'd stop picking fights so she can use her trump card. Hell, I could use mine, too. Everybody knows you don't mess with my dad, Big Math, and you definitely don't mess with his kids. Still, you don't see me going around starting shit. Like at Big D's party, Kenya is giving Danasia Allen some serious stank eye. I don't remember much about Danasia but I remember that she and Kenya haven't liked each other since fourth grade. Tonight, Danasia's dancing with some guy halfway across the room and paying no attention to Kenya. But no matter where we move, Kenya spots Danasia and glares at her. And the thing about the stank eye is, at some point, you feel it on you, inviting you to kick some ass or have your ass kicked. Oh, I can't stand her! Kenya seeds. The other day, we were in line in the cafeteria, right? And she behind me talking out the side of her neck. She didn't use my name, but I know she was talking about me, saying I tried to get with Devante. For real? I say what I'm supposed to. Uh-huh. I don't want him. I know. Honestly, I don't know who Devante is. So what did you do? What you think I did? I turned around and asked if she had a problem with me. Old Trick gonna say, I wasn't even talking about you. Knowing she was? You're so lucky you go to that white people's school and don't have to deal with hoes like that. Ain't this some shit? Not even five minutes ago, I was stuck up because I go to Williamson. Now I'm lucky? Trust me, my school has hoes too. Hold'em is universal. Watch, we gon' handle her tonight. Kenya's stank eye reaches its highest level of stank. 
Denasia feels its sting and looks right at Kenya. Uh-huh, Kenya confirms, like Denasia hears her. Watch. Hold up, we? That's why you begged me to come to this party? So you can have a tag team partner? She has the nerve to look offended. It ain't like you had nothing else to do. Or anybody else to hang out with. I'm doing your ass a favor. Really, Kenya? You do know I have friends, right? She rolls her eyes, hard. Only the whites are visible for a few seconds. Them little bougie girls from your school don't count. They're not bougie, and they do count, I think. Maya and I are cool. Not sure what's up with me and Haley lately. And honestly, if pulling me into a fight is your way of helping my social life, I'm good. God damn, it's always some drama with you. Please, Star. She stretches the please extra long, too long. This is what I'm thinking. We wait until she get away from Devante, right? And then we... My phone vibrates against my thigh, and I glance at the screen. Since I've ignored his calls, Chris texts me instead. Can we talk? I didn't mean for it to go like that. Of course he didn't. He meant for it to go a whole different way yesterday, which is the problem. I slip the phone in my pocket. I'm not sure what I want to say, but I'd rather deal with him later. Kenya! Somebody shouts. This big, light-skinned girl with bone-straight hair moves through the crowd toward us. A tall boy with a black-and-blonde frohawk follows her. They both give Kenya hugs and talk about how cute she looks. I'm not even here. Why you ain't tell me you was coming? The girl says and sticks her thumb in her mouth. She's got an overbite from doing that, too. You could have rolled with us. Nah, girl, I had to go get Star. Kenya says. We walked here together. That's when they noticed me, standing not even half a foot from Kenya. The guy squints as he gives me a quick once-over. He frowns for a hot second, but I notice it. Ain't you Big Mav's daughter who work in the store? See? People act like that's the name on my birth certificate. Yeah, that's me. Oh! The girl says, I knew you looked familiar. We were in third grade together, Miss Bridges' class. I sat behind you. Oh, I know this is the moment I'm supposed to remember her, but I don't. I guess Kenya was right. I really don't know anybody. Their faces are familiar, but you don't get names and life stories when you're bagging folks' groceries. I can lie, though. Yeah, I remember you. Girl, quit lying, the guy says. You know you don't know her ass. Why you always lying? Kenya and the girl sing together. The guy joins in, and they all bust out laughing. Bianca and Chance, be nice, Kenya says. This star's first party. Her folks don't let her go nowhere. I cut her a side eye. I go to parties, Kenya. Have y'all seen her at any parties around here? Kenya asked them. Nope. Point made. And before you say it, little lame white kid suburb parties don't count. Chance and Bianca snicker. Damn, I wish this hoodie could swallow me up somehow.
I bet they be doing Molly and shit, don't they? Chance asked me. White kids love popping pills. And listening to Taylor Swift, Bianca adds, talking around her thumb. Okay, that's somewhat true, but I'm not telling them that. Nah, actually, their parties are pretty dope, I say. One time this boy had J. Cole perform at his birthday party. Damn, for real? Chance asks. Shit. Bitch, next time invite me. I'll party with them white kids. Anyway, Kenya says loudly, we were talking about running up on Danasia. Bitch over there dancing with Devante. Oh, trick, Bianca says. You know she been running her mouth about you, right? I was in Mr. Donald's class last week when Aaliyah told me. Chance rolls his eyes. Ugh, Mr. Donald. You just mad he threw you out. Kenya says. Hell yes. Anyway, Aaliyah told me, Bianca begins. I get lost again as classmates and teachers that I don't know are discussed. I can't say anything. Doesn't matter, though. I'm invisible. I feel like that a lot around here. In the middle of them complaining about Denasia and their teachers, Kenya says something about getting another drink and the three of them walk off without me. Suddenly, I'm Eve in the garden after she ate the fruit. It's like I realize I'm naked. I'm by myself at a party I'm not even supposed to be at, where I barely know anybody, and the person I do know just left me hanging. Kenya begged me to come to this party for weeks. I knew I'd be uncomfortable as hell, but every time I told Kenya no, she said I act like I'm too good for a garden party. I got tired of hearing that shit and decided to prove her wrong. Problem is, it would have taken Black Jesus to convince my parents to let me come. Now, Black Jesus will have to save me if they find out I'm here. People glance over at me with that, who is this chick standing against the wall by herself like an idiot? Look, I slip my hands into my pockets. As long as I play it cool and keep to myself, I should be fine. The ironic thing is, though, at Williamson, I don't have to play it cool. I'm cool by default because I'm one of the only black kids there. I have to earn coolness in Garden Heights, and that's more difficult than buying retro Jordans on release day. Funny how it works with white kids, though. It's dope to be black until it's hard to be black. Star, a familiar voice says. The sea of people parts for him, like he's a brown-skinned Moses. Guys give him daps, and girls crane their necks to look at him. He smiles at me, and his dimples ruin any G-persona he has. Khalil is fine. No other way of putting it. And I used to take baths with him. Not like that, but way back in the day when we would giggle because he had a wee-wee, and I had what his grandma called a wee-ha. I swear it wasn't perverted, though. He hugs me, smelling like soap and baby powder. What's up, girl? Ain't seen you in a minute. He lets me go. You don't text nobody, nothing. Where you been? School and the basketball team keep me busy, I say. But I'm always at the store. You're the one nobody sees anymore. His dimples disappear. 
He wipes his nose like he always does before a lie. I've been busy. Obviously. The brand new Jordans, the crisp white tee, the diamonds in his ears. When you grow up in Garden Heights, you know what busy really means. Fuck. I wish he wasn't that kind of busy, though. I don't know if I want to tear up or smack him. But the way Khalil looks at me with those hazel eyes makes it hard to be upset. I feel like I'm ten again, standing in the basement of Christ Temple Church, having my first kiss with him at vacation Bible school. Suddenly I remember I'm in a hoodie, looking a straight-up mess, and that I actually have a boyfriend. I might not be answering Chris's calls or texts right now, but he's still mine, and I want to keep it that way. How's your grandma? I ask. And Cameron. They aight. Grandma's sick, though. Khalil sips from his cup. Doctor say she got cancer or whatever. Damn. Sorry, Kay. Yeah. She taking chemo. She only worried about getting a wig, though. He gives a weak laugh that doesn't show his dimples. She'll be aight. It's a prayer more than a prophecy. Is your mama helping with Cameron? Good old star. Always looking for the best in people. You know she ain't helping. Hey, it was just a question. She came in the store the other day. She looks better. For now, says Khalil. She claims she's trying to get clean, but it's the usual. She'll go clean a few weeks, decide she wants one more hit, then be back at it. But like I said, I'm good. Cameron's good. Grandma's good. He shrugs. That's all that matters. Yeah, I say. But I remember the nights I spent with Khalil on his porch, waiting for his mama to come home. Whether he likes it or not, she matters to him, too. The music changes, and Drake raps from the speakers. I nod to the beat and rap along under my breath. Everybody on the dance floor yells out, the started from the bottom, now we're here, part. Some days we are at the bottom in Garden Heights. But we still share the feeling that, damn, it could be worse. Khalil is watching me. A smile tries to form on his lips, but he shakes his head. Can't believe you still love whiny-ass Drake. I gape at him. Leave my husband alone. Your corny husband. Baby, you my everything. You all I ever wanted. Khalil sings in a whiny voice. I push him with my shoulder and he laughs, his drink splashing over the sides of the cup. You know that's what he sounds like. I flip him off. He puckers his lips and makes a kissing sound. All these months apart and we've fallen back into normal like it's nothing. Khalil grabs a napkin from the coffee table and wipes drink off his Jordans, the three retros. They came out a few years ago, but I swear those things are so fresh. They cost about $300, and that's if you find somebody on eBay who goes easy. Chris did. I got mine for a steal at $150, but I wear kid sizes. Thanks to my small feet, Chris and I can match our sneakers. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're that couple. Shit, we're fly, though. If he can stop doing stupid stuff, we'll really be good. I like the kicks, I tell Khalil. Thanks. He scrubs the shoes with his napkin. I cringe. With each hard rub, the shoes cry for my help. No lie, every time a sneaker is cleaned improperly, a kitten dies. Khalil, I say, one second away from snatching that napkin. Either wipe gently back and forth or dab. Don't scrub. For real. He looks up at me, smirking. Okay, Miss Sneakerhead. And thank Black Jesus, he dabs. Since you made me spill my drink on them, I ought to make you clean them. It'll cost you sixty dollars. Sixty? He shouts, straightening up. Hell yeah, and it would be eighty if they had icy soles. Clear bottoms are a bitch to clean. Cleaning kits aren't cheap. Besides, you're obviously making big money if you can buy those. Khalil sips his drink like I didn't say anything, mutters, damn, this shit's strong, and sets the cup on the coffee table. Hey, tell your pops I need to holler at him soon. Some stuff going down that I need to talk to him about. What kind of stuff? Grown folks' business. Yeah, because you're so grown. Five months, two weeks, and three days older than you. He winks. I ain't forgot. A commotion stirs in the middle of the dance floor. Voices argue louder than the music. Cuss words fly left and right. My first thought, Kenya walked up on Denasia like she promised. But the voices are deeper than theirs. Pop! A shot rings out. I duck. Pop! A second shot. The crowd stampedes toward the door, which leads to more cussing and fighting since it's impossible for everybody to get out at once. Khalil grabs my hand. Come on. There are way too many people and way too much curly hair for me to catch a glimpse of Kenya. But Kenya, forget her. Let's go. He pulls me through the crowd, shoving people out our way and stepping on shoes. That alone could get us some bullets. I look for Kenya among the panicked faces, but still no sign of her. I don't try to see who got shot or who did it. You can't snitch if you don't know anything. Cars speed away outside, and people run into the night in any direction where shots aren't firing off. Khalil leads me to a Chevy Impala parked under a dim streetlight. He pushes me in through the driver's side, and I climb into the passenger seat. We screech off leaving chaos in the rearview mirror. Always some shit, he mumbles. Can't have a party without somebody getting shot. He sounds like my parents. That's exactly why they don't let me go nowhere, as Kenya puts it. At least not around Garden Heights. I send Kenya a text, hoping she's all right. Doubt those bullets were meant for her, but bullets go where they want to go. Kenya texts back kind of quick. I'm fine. I see that bitch, though, about to handle her ass. Where you at? Is this chick for real? We just ran for our lives, and she's ready to fight? I don't even answer that dumb shit. Khalil's Impala is nice. Not all flashy like some guys' cars. 
I didn't see any rims before I got in, and the front seat has cracks in the leather. But the interior is a tacky lime green, so it's been customized at some point. I pick at a crack in the seat. Who you think got shot? Khalil gets his hairbrush out the compartment on the door. Probably a king lord, he says, brushing the sides of his fade. Some garden disciples came in when I got there. Something was bound to pop off. I nod. Garden Heights has been a battlefield for the past two months over some stupid territory wars. I was born a queen, cause daddy used to be a king lord. But when he left the game, my street royalty status ended. But even if I'd grown up in it, I wouldn't understand fighting over streets nobody owns. Khalil drops the brush in the door and cranks up his stereo, blasting an old rap song Daddy has played a million times. I frown. Why are you always listening to that old stuff? Man, get out of here. Tupac was the truth. Yeah, 20 years ago. Nah, even now. Like, check this. He points at me, which means he's about to go into one of his Khalil philosophical moments. Pac said thug life stood for the hate you give little infants fucks everybody. I raise my eyebrows. What? Listen. The hate you, the letter U, give little infants fucks everybody. T-H-U-G-L-I-F-E. Meaning what society gives us as youth it bites them in the ass when we wild out. Get it? Damn. Yeah. See? Told you he was relevant. He nods to the beat and raps along. But now I'm wondering what he's doing to fuck everybody. As much as I think I know, I hope I'm wrong. I need to hear it from him. So why have you really been busy? I ask. A few months ago, Daddy said you quit the store. I haven't seen you since. He scoots closer to the steering wheel. Where you want me to take you, your house or the store? Khalil. Your house or the store? If you're selling that stuff. Mind your business, Star. Don't worry about me. I'm doing what I gotta do. Bullshit. You know my dad would help you out. He wipes his nose before his lie. I don't need help from nobody, okay? And that little minimum wage job your pops gave me didn't make nothing happen. I got tired of choosing between lights and food. I thought your grandma was working. She was. When she got sick, them clowns at the hospital claimed they'd work with her. Two months later, she wasn't pulling her load on the job, because when you're going through chemo, you can't pull big-ass garbage bins around. They fired her. He shakes his head. Funny, huh? The hospital fired her because she was sick. It's silent in the Impala, except for Tupac asking, who do you believe in? I don't know. My phone vibrates again. Probably either Chris asking for forgiveness or Kenya asking for backup against Denasia. Instead, my big brother's all-caps texts appear on the screen. I don't know why he does that. He probably thinks it intimidates me. Really, it annoys the hell out of me. 
Where are you? You and Kenya better not be at that party. I heard somebody got shot. The only thing worse than protective parents is protective older brothers. Even black Jesus can't save me from seven. Khalil glances over at me. Seven, huh? How'd you know? Because you always look like you want to punch something when he talks to you. Remember that time at your birthday party when he kept telling you what to wish for? And I popped him in his mouth. Then, Natasha got mad at you for telling her boyfriend to shut up, Khalil says, laughing. I roll my eyes. She got on my nerves with her crush on Seven. Half the time, I thought she came over just to see him. Nah, it was because you had the Harry Potter movies. What we used to call ourselves, the Hood Trio, tighter than... The inside of Voldemort's nose. We were so silly for that. I know, right? He says. We laugh, but something's missing from it. Someone's missing from it. Natasha. Khalil looks at the road. Crazy it's been six years, you know? A whoop whoop sound startles us, and blue lights flash in the rearview mirror. When I was 12, my parents had two talks with me. One was the usual birds and bees. Well, I didn't really get the usual version. My mom, Lisa, is a registered nurse, and she told me what went where and what didn't need to go here, there, or any damn where till I'm grown. Back then, I doubted anything was going anywhere anyway. While all the other girls sprouted breasts between 6th and 7th grade, my chest was as flat as my back. The other talk was about what to do if a cop stopped me. Mama fussed and told Daddy I was too young for that. He argued that I wasn't too young to get arrested or shot. Star Star, you do whatever they tell you to do, he said. Keep your hands visible. Don't make any sudden moves. Only speak when they speak to you. I knew it must have been serious. Daddy has the biggest mouth of anybody I know, and if he said to be quiet, I needed to be quiet. I hope somebody had the talk with Khalil. He cusses under his breath, turns Tupac down, and maneuvers the Impala to the side of the street. We're on Carnation, where most of the houses are abandoned and half the streetlights are busted. Nobody around but us and the cop. Khalil turns the ignition off. Wonder what this fool wants. The officer parks and puts his brights on. I blink to keep from being blinded. I remember something else Daddy said. If you're with somebody, you better hope they don't have nothing on them, or both of y'all going down. Kay. You don't have anything in the car, do you? I ask. He watches the cop in his side mirror. Nah. The officer approaches the driver's door and taps the window. Khalil cranks the handle to roll it down. As if we aren't blinded enough, the officer beams his flashlight in our faces. License registration and proof of insurance. Khalil breaks a rule. He doesn't do what the cop wants. What you pull us over for? 
license, registration, and proof of insurance. I said what you pull us over for. Khalil, I plead. Do what he said. Khalil groans and takes his wallet out. The officer follows his movements with the flashlight. My heart pounds loudly, but Daddy's instructions echo in my head. Get a good look at the cop's face. If you can remember his badge number, that's even better. With the flashlight following Khalil's hands, I make out the numbers on the badge. 115. He's white, mid-30s to early 40s, has a brown buzz cut and a thin scar over his top lip. Khalil hands the officer his papers and license. 115 looks over them. Where are you two coming from tonight? Nunya, Khalil says, meaning none of your business. What you pull me over for? Your taillight's broken. So are you gonna give me a ticket or what? Khalil asks. You know what? Get out the car, smart guy. Man, just give me my ticket. Get out the car! Hands up where I can see them. Khalil gets out with his hands up. 115 yanks him by his arm and pins him against the back door. I fight to find my voice. He didn't mean... Hands on the dashboard! The officer barks at me. Don't move! I do what he tells me, but my hands are shaking too much to be still. He pats Khalil down. Okay, smart mouth. Let's see what we find on you today. You ain't gonna find nothing, Khalil says. 115 pats him down two more times. He turns up empty. Stay here, he tells Khalil. And you. He looks in the window at me. Don't move. I can't even nod. The officer walks back to his patrol car. My parents haven't raised me to fear the police, just to be smart around them. They told me it's not smart to move while a cop has his back to you. Khalil does. He comes to his door. It's not smart to make a sudden move. Khalil does. He opens the driver's door. You okay, Star? Pow! One. Khalil's body jerks. Blood splatters from his back. He holds on to the door to keep himself upright. Pow! Two. Khalil gasps. Pow! Three. Khalil looks at me, stunned. He falls to the ground. I'm ten again, watching Natasha drop. An ear-splitting scream emerges from my gut, explodes in my throat, and uses every inch of me to be heard. Instinct says don't move, but everything else says check on Khalil. I jump out the Impala and rush around to the other side. Khalil stares at the sky as if he hopes to see God. His mouth is open like he wants to scream. I scream loud enough for the both of us. No, no, no! Is all I can say.
like I'm a year old and it's the only word I know. I'm not sure how I end up on the ground next to him. My mom once said that if someone gets shot, try to stop the bleeding. But there's so much blood. Too much blood. No! 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 Khalil doesn't move. He doesn't utter a word. He doesn't even look at me. His body stiffens. And he's gone. I hope he sees God. Someone else screams. I blink through my tears. Officer 115 yells at me, pointing the same gun he killed my friend with. I put my hands up. Three. They leave Khalil's body in the street like it's an exhibit. Police cars and ambulances flash all along Carnation Street. People stand off to the side trying to see what happened. Damn, bruh, some guy says. They killed him. The police tell the crowd to leave. Nobody listens. The paramedics can't do shit for Khalil, so they put me in the back of an ambulance like I need help. The bright lights spotlight me, and people crane their necks to get a peek. I don't feel special. I feel sick. The cops rummage through Khalil's car. I try to tell them to stop. Please cover his body. Please close his eyes. Please close his mouth. Get away from his car. Don't pick up his hairbrush. But the words never come out. 115 sits on the sidewalk with his face buried in his hands. Other officers pat his shoulder and tell him it'll be okay. They finally put a sheet over Khalil. He can't breathe under it. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I gasp and gasp and gasp. Star? Brown eyes with long eyelashes appear in front of me. They're like mine. I couldn't say much to the cops, but I did manage to give them my parents' names and phone numbers. Hey, Daddy says. Come on, let's go. I open my mouth to respond. A sob comes out. Daddy is moved aside. And Mama wraps her arms around me. She rubs my back and speaks in hushed tones that tell lies. It's all right, baby. It's all right. We stay this way for a long time. Eventually, Daddy helps us out the ambulance. He wraps his arm around me like a shield against curious eyes and guides me to his Tahoe down the street. He drives. A street light flashes across his face, revealing how tight his jaw is set. His veins bulge along his bald head. Mama's wearing her scrubs, the ones with the rubber ducks on them. She did an extra shift at the emergency room tonight. She wipes her eyes a few times, probably thinking about Khalil, 
or how that could have been me lying in the street. My stomach twists. All of that blood, and it came out of him. Some of it is on my hands, on Seven's hoodie, on my sneakers. An hour ago, we were laughing and catching up. Now his blood. Hot spit pools in my mouth. My stomach twists tighter. I gag. Mama glances at me in the rearview mirror. Maverick, pull over. I throw myself across the back seat and push the door open before the truck comes to a complete stop. It feels like everything in me is coming out, and all I can do is let it. Mama hops out and runs around to me. She holds my hair out the way and rubs my back. I'm so sorry, baby, she says. When we get home, she helps me undress. Seven's hoodie and my Jordans disappear into a black trash bag, and I never see them again. I sit in a tub of steaming water and scrub my hands raw to get Khalil's blood off. Daddy carries me to bed, and Mama brushes her fingers through my hair until I fall asleep. Nightmares wake me over and over again. Mama reminds me to breathe the same way she did before I outgrew asthma. I think she stays in my room the whole night, because every time I wake up, she's sitting on my bed. But this time, she's gone. My eyes strain against the brightness of my neon blue walls. The clock says it's five in the morning. My body's so used to waking up at five, it doesn't care if it's Saturday morning or not. I stare at the glow-in-the-dark stars on my ceiling, trying to recap the night before. The party flashes in my mind. The fight. One fifteen pulling me and Khalil over. The first shot rings in my ears. The second. The third. I'm lying in bed. Khalil is lying in the county morgue. That's where Natasha ended up, too. It happened six years ago, but I still remember everything from that day. I was sweeping floors at our grocery store, saving up for my first pair of J's when Natasha ran in. She was chunky, her mama told her it was baby fat, dark-skinned, and wore her hair in braids that always looked freshly done. I wanted braids like hers so bad. Star, the hydrant on Elm Street busted, she said. That was like saying we had a free water park. I remember looking at Daddy and pleading silently. He said I could go as long as I promised to be back in an hour. I don't think I ever saw the water shoot as high as it did that day. Almost everybody in the neighborhood was there, too, just having fun. I was the only one who noticed the car at first. A tattooed arm stretched out the back window, holding a Glock. People ran. Not me, though. My feet became part of the sidewalk. Natasha was splashing in the water, all happy and stuff. Then, pow, pow, pow! I dove into a rose bush, 
By the time I got up, somebody was yelling, Call 911! At first I thought it was me, cause I had blood on my shirt. The thorns on the rose bush got me, that's all. It was Natasha, though. Her blood mixed in with the water, and all you could see was a red river flowing down the street. She looked scared. We were ten. We didn't know what happened after you died. Hell, I still don't know. And she was forced to find out, even if she didn't want to find out. I know she didn't. Just like Khalil didn't. My door creaks open and Mama peeks in. She tries to smile. Look who's up. She sinks onto her spot on the bed and touches my forehead, even though I don't have a fever. She takes care of sick kids so much that it's her first instinct. How you feeling, Munch? That nickname. My parents claim I was always munching on something from the moment I got off the bottle. I've lost my big appetite, but I can't lose that nickname. Tired, I say. My voice has extra bass in it. I want to stay in bed. I know, baby, but I don't want you here by yourself. That's all I want to be, by myself. She stares at me but it feels like she's looking at who I used to be. Her little girl with ponytails and a snaggletooth who swore she was a Powerpuff girl. It's weird, but also kind of like a blanket I want to get wrapped up in. I love you, she says. I love you too. She stands and holds her hand out. Come on, let's get you something to eat. We walk slowly to the kitchen. Black Jesus hangs from the cross in a painting on the hallway wall, and Malcolm X holds a shotgun in a photograph next to him. Nana still complains about those pictures hanging next to each other. We live in her old house. She gave it to my parents after my Uncle Carlos moved her into his humongous house in the suburbs. Uncle Carlos was always uneasy about Nana living by herself in Garden Heights especially since break-ins and robberies seem to happen more to older folks than anybody. Nana doesn't think she's old, though. She refused to leave, talking about how it was her home, and no thugs were going to run her out, not even when somebody broke in and stole her television. About a month after that, Uncle Carlos claimed that he and Aunt Pam needed her help with their kids. Since, according to Nana, Aunt Pam can't cook worth a damn for those poor babies, she finally agreed to move. Our house hasn't lost its Nana-ness, though, with its permanent odor of potpourri, flowered wallpaper, and hints of pink in almost every room. Daddy and Seven are talking before we get to the kitchen. They go silent as soon as we walk in. Morning, baby girl. Daddy gets up from the table and kisses my forehead. You sleep okay? Yeah, I lie, as he guides me to a seat. Seven just stares. Mama opens the fridge, the door crowded with takeout menus and fruit-shaped magnets. All right, Munch, she says. You want turkey bacon or regular? Regular? I'm surprised I have an option. 
We never have pork. We aren't Muslims. More like Christlims. Mama became a member of Christ Temple Church when she was in Nana's belly. Daddy believes in black Jesus, but follows the Black Panthers' ten-point program more than the Ten Commandments. He agrees with the Nation of Islam on some stuff, but he can't get over the fact that they may have killed Malcolm X. Pig in my house, Daddy grumbles and sits next to me. Seven smirks across from him. Seven and Daddy look like one of those age progression pictures they show when somebody's been missing a long time. Throw my little brother Sakani in there, and you have the same person at eight, seventeen, and thirty-six. They're dark brown, slender, and have thick eyebrows and long eyelashes that almost look feminine. Seven's dreads are long enough to give both bald-headed Daddy and short-haired Sakani each a head full of hair. As for me, it's as if God mixed my parents' skin tones in a paint bucket to get my medium brown complexion. I did inherit Daddy's eyelashes, and I'm cursed with his eyebrows, too. Otherwise, I'm mostly my mom, with big brown eyes and a little too much forehead. Mama passes behind Seven with the bacon and squeezes his shoulder. Thank you for staying with your brother last night so we could... Her voice catches. But the reminder of what happened hangs in the air. She clears her throat. We appreciate it. No problem. I needed to get out the house. Can't spend the night, Daddy asks. More like moved in. Aisha talking about they can be a family. Hey, Daddy says. That's your mama, boy. Don't be calling her by her name like you grown. Somebody in that house needs to be grown, Mama says. She takes a skillet out and hollers down the hall. Sakani, I'm not telling you again. If you want to go to Carlos's for the weekend, you better get up. You're not going to have me late for work. I guess she's got to work a day shift to make up for last night. Pops, you know what's going to happen, Seven says. He'll beat her. She'll put him out. Then he'll come back saying he changed. Only difference is this time, I'm not letting him put his hands on me. You could always move in with us, says Daddy. I know, but I can't leave Kenya and Lyric. That fool's crazy enough to hit them, too. He don't care that they're his daughters. Aight, Daddy says. Don't say anything to him. If he puts his hands on you, let me handle that. Seven nods, then looks at me. He opens his mouth and keeps it open a while before saying, I'm sorry about last night, Star. Somebody finally acknowledges the cloud hanging over the kitchen, which for some reason is like acknowledging me. Thanks, I say. Even though it's weird saying that, I don't deserve the sympathy. Khalil's family does. There's just the sound of bacon crackling and popping in the skillet. It's like a fragile stickers on my forehead, and instead of taking a chance and saying something that might break me, they'd rather say nothing at all. But the silence is the worst. I borrowed your hoodie, Seven. I mumble. It's random, but it's better than nothing. The blue one. Mama had to throw it away. 
Khalil's blood. I swallow. His blood got on it. Oh. That's all anybody says for a minute. Mama turns around to the skillet. Don't make any sense. That baby, she says thickly. He was just a baby. Daddy shakes his head. That boy never hurt anybody. He didn't deserve that shit. Why did they shoot him? Seven asks. Was he a threat or something? No, I say quietly. I stare at the table. I can feel all of them watching me again. He didn't do anything, I say. We didn't do anything. Khalil didn't even have a gun. Daddy releases a slow breath. Folks around here gonna lose their minds when they find that out. People from the neighborhood are already talking about it on Twitter, Seven says. I saw it last night. Did they mention your sister? Mama asks. No, just R.I.P. Khalil messages, fuck the police, stuff like that. I don't think they know details. What's gonna happen to me when the details do come out? I ask. What do you mean, baby? My mom asks. Besides the cop, I'm the only person who was there. And you've seen stuff like this. It ends up on national news. People get death threats. Cops target them. All kinds of stuff. I won't let anything happen to you. Daddy says. None of us will. He looks at Mama and Seven. We're not telling anybody that Star was there. Should Sakani know? Seven asks. No, Mama says. It's best if he didn't. We're just going to be quiet for now. I've seen it happen over and over again. A black person gets killed just for being black, and all hell breaks loose. I've tweeted RIP hashtags, reblogged pictures on Tumblr, and signed every petition out there. I always said that if I saw it happen to somebody, I would have the loudest voice, making sure the world knew what went down. Now I am that person, and I'm too afraid to speak. Context of White Supremacy. Uh, we are in Chapter 3. This is not the end of Chapter 3. This is just kind of a break point. Chapter 3 of Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, a context of white supremacy. If you have commentary, questions, thoughts, uh, major question that I have, why do you think this book, so heavily promoted by whites, uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, Angie Thomas, and this is a black author uh, who put the book together. Nothing to do with her uh, and what she wanted to do, but why would whites latch on to this book? Because there certainly are other uh, books, even other young adult literature that deals with racism. So why do we think racists latched on to this book uh, to have it be so heavily promoted? Again, 38 weeks as the number one bestseller on the New York Times young adult bestseller list and being adapted to a major motion picture. What about this film? Do we think whites, or excuse me, what about this book? Do we think whites read, looked at and said, hmm, this is one we should promote. Number 641-715-3640. 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you want to join us, but you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, Click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. When you do so, it will open a small window on your screen. The first line, it is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in your real name, nickname, press random keys, whatever you are comfortable with. Once you get all that done, click the green button at the bottom to connect you to the broadcast. Uh, You should be able to hear us live. If you would like to participate, it is the same procedure. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six one. And I'll see your hand on the switchboard. We will get you on the line. Did want to say uh, quickly talking about our timing with this reading. This book, you already heard in the portion, the very first portion that we read today, uh, her talking about Tupac and uh, his uh, acronym uh, Thug Life, the hate you give infants uh, fucks everyone. Uh, And how big a fan uh, Angie Thomas, the author talking about, she was a big fan and really influenced uh, by Tupac. She talks about him in many of her interviews, some strange cosmic way for us to be starting this book on March 9th, which is uh, March 9, 2018, 21 years to the day. Notorious B.I.G. was shot and killed in California. Hmm. Folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, questions uh, on the first bit of reading that we have done. Uh, If you dialed in, have a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to chime in. And particularly if we have any younger folks, uh, if you read the book, uh, if you had to read it for school, if you read it voluntarily, if we have any younger folks who read the book, would be grand to hear your thoughts, to hear what the conversation sounded like in school. If you had to write something about the text, would be grand to hear as much detail about that as possible. And or if we have any educators who are familiar with how this book it has been used in school uh, within the first year of it being published, that would be good to hear as well. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Greetings. Right poorly, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I want to say um, R.I.P. to B.I.G. They've been playing his music on the radio um, all day, you know, here. Um, this book, so far, um, being honest, it's just been terrible. 
Um, unless this book ends with black people defeating white people, it's not going to be a good book. Um, it feels like the typical, you know, black literature, you know, just a book of trauma. Um, you know, it's, it's like, um, now I'm going to use a metaphor. It's not Saturday. You know, it's, I feel like it was the Oreo cookie effect. You know, the black boy, maybe a gang member shoots the black boy at the party. And then the other end is the black boy shoots the little black girl in the drive-by. And in the middle, the white cop shoots the white, the, her black friend, you know. So it's like she, she the, the, the point that you should be making when you're doing this book is, the you know, the cop. But you, you had to put it in the middle of two black-on-black violent. It's just uh, one of the reasons why I think white people like this book, because it, it justifies a lot of their actions. Um, well, you know, she didn't, you know, he's a drug dealer, you know, like, I mean, you didn't have a good, it, I could just see why they liked it. I'm just off of that point. Um, I think the father giving her advice was good. Um, I think her father, if he worked with her, he should have, he worked for the father, which the father would have gave from the scene at Rice. Um, you know, the kid just had a tragedy. All of his grandmother, she's sick. She gets fired from her job. He has to go out and hustle. And I mean, it, it's just, um, you know, his family's messed up. You know, it's anyway. Um, and it kept in the party part when she was talking to her friend, I think Natasha. I could be wrong, but the friend. Uh, she was making it, it just kept indicating that, hey, when I'm with these white people, it ain't like this, you know, it's much better to be around these white people. Um, like, um, being around black people is so dysfunctional. Every aspect of her life around these black people has just been dysfunction from the time she was a little girl and she couldn't even play at the fire hydrant to the, to the, um, um, the party where her friend just wants to fight this other girl. Everything is just this big bubble of dysfunction. And when she's with the white kids, you know, they they have stars come to the party and perform for them. It's just, you know, everyone pops pills and has a good time. Nothing bad happens. It's just, um, I think this is what, why white people like it. That's just so far. I think this, I haven't read this book, but just for predicting what may be happening what this book will be talking about, um, I think that will even further solidify why they like this book. And I'll mute my line. Mm, appreciate that, Thomas in New York. Uh, other folks who chimed in, if you have a hand up, if you have thoughts, questions uh, on the book or thoughts about why this book is being heavily promoted by whites. And certainly if we have anyone who thinks that Gus is in error, that white people are not heavily promoting this book, regardless of, you know, bestseller uh, accolades and all that, if you think that that's not the case, then let's hear that as well. Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Mr. Demery Ford. Greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to other callers and listeners. Um, I was too, like you, at first, any book that uh, white people are excited about and promoting, uh, I was suspicious of, but after uh, reading, you know, parts of the book and, and looking at this, listening to a couple of interviews from the author, I think that it may be 
constructive. If nothing else, uh, we can uh, pick out the points that, you know, would um, help us in, uh, in our encounters with uh, police officers and uh, if nothing else, uh, you know, it would be, it looks like to me a coming to age type book where uh, she will probably uh, blossom into a conscious black person, but like all of us uh, that don't understand racism fully, but uh, we make some effort, uh, then uh, the knowledge will come. I, I like the part uh, <clears throat> where it's associated with Black Lives Matter. I think she used a phrase that uh, uh, the young man was killed. His last uh, words was, I can't breathe. Uh, the brown uh, guy, he was 18 years old, shot down well the police uh was choking him he couldn't breathe uh but i'll start with the uh positive role model of uh, Maverick maverick uh, carter her dad uh like so many books the pattern is you know no positive black male models and um uh, a lot of stereotypes uh, since this is going to be made into a movie, I like the characters that have, the people who have been uh, selected for these characters. Russell Hornsby as her father and O'Common as her Uncle Carlos. That should be pretty interesting. Uh, uh, why, one of my questions is, why does the burden lie on the black person uh, when the police uh, stop, then why does the burden always lie on us uh, to ensure that this encounter is a safe one? You know, if police were acting in a professional manner and it was protocol every time, I'm, I doubt that there would be as many uh, unarmed black males shot down in the street. Uh, Big D's party she was at, underage drinking, drugs, and potentially babies being perceived. Uh, you know, it's you try to have a good time, you know, but if you don't have the proper, well, I guess those were college kids mostly. She had stuck, snuck into the party, uh, which would lead down a bad road, get stopped by the police. She had had some instructions from her father, but, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is, like uh, Mr. Fuller was saying, to comply, comply, comply. It's like the comply now and contest later. But we are prisoners of war. We live in a police state. You know, we have to start acting like that. Where I will, uh, they restrict our travel and even our communication. So uh, we had a disadvantage in 
and we need to realize that. Uh, I did notice something that was surprisingly code switching. Uh, I remember when I was working with some young people and the guy would tell me, I have a white voice and I have a black voice. I said, well, can I hear your white voice? And he got all proper and pronouncing his words correctly and uh, sounding like a white person. Then I said, well, let me hear your black voice. And he goes into slang and this and that. I thought it was amusing, but I, you know, we, we are forced to uh, adjust our behavior in order to fit in or to be accepted by whites. And then she mentioned that it was cool to be, no, she was cool by default. It's cool to be black until it's hard to be black. And uh, that's, uh, well, a lot of mentions, a lot of references to religion and Christianity, uh, black Jesus. Uh, we know that Christianity has been used to uh, manipulate our consciousness, our minds. We know that the most segregated hour in America is in church on Sunday. Uh, it's no secret that uh, to this day, religion uh, is used to oppress black people. She made a mention that we were wasn't Muslim. We were more like Christlams. Uh, you know, this uh, to me is not funny because the uh, racist, the Christian identity movement, these races identify with this ideology, Christian ideology, the alt-right, KKK, all claim they have Christian type. And uh, we need to be cautious about that. And uh, mentioning Black Jesus, well, you know, that's to me a beginning of the uh, uh, deprogramming process. If you can uh, have this image in your likeness, that's a beginning. Uh, I guess we hadn't got to the interracial uh, part yet, but she did say something about her feet being small enough to exchange uh, sneakers with Chris. And I thought that was, maybe I didn't hear that right, but I don't, I don't have the book. I do have the audio. Uh, and if, thus, if you have the PDF, if you can, you know, uh, email to me, I appreciate that. I can look some of these things up because it's what I thought I heard. But I think the book is, for young adults, it's along the same lines as uh, Jacqueline Woodson, uh, Mildred Taylor. And one of the things she said is suffering injustices in silence. I think that, you know, when you see racism, call it out, uh, at least understand uh, when it's being practiced on you. She thought, you know, in her early part of this book that I guess it's all right to switch on and out. You got a white uh, image and then a black image, but in reality, 
you're just one person. You're not, uh, you don't have to uh, alter who you are in order to uh, fit in. And I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking the call, girl. I think uh, with the shoes, she was talking about her feet being small. I think it was, she mentioned that uh, she could get her shoes a little cheaper because she could get the children's uh, sizes and she could match her shoes. I think because she could get them a little cheaper, she could get the same matching shoes as Chris, who I believe is her white boyfriend, who we have not met yet. She's just alluding to him, but I think that's was the reference with the uh, shoes. And uh, Miss Angie Thomas herself mentioned in a different interview that she's a big Jacqueline uh, Woodson fan, and that's the author that she would most like to hang out and have like a afternoon lunch or something with is Jacqueline uh, Woodson, black female author. Uh, other folks we've not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. This is I call myself Jay from St. Louis. Um, wow, this this book is uh, very eye-opening, and I think there's a lot of material here to uh, kind of poke and prod and see uh, what these cultural products that are advocated, uh, these white institutions, the kind of patterns they have. And um, just listening to the first couple of chapters, I have to say, after taking a being forced to sit through a class on the wire, uh, I see a lot of disheartening continuities with uh, the kind of saturation of black trauma as a kind of catalyst for a broader, more important story. Um, so th that was really disheartening. Um, and then there's also like what I kind of see is the morally coded language. Um, when she's talking about the other characters, that's the main character that she comes in contact with, uh, the character that ends up, the two characters that end up dying, there's kind of, she's talking about other black characters, this, this language of accountability that's kind of morally, it kind of places the black characters outside of a moral framework a little bit. Um, so I'll just ask if other listeners hear it. I could be off, but I think if, I think if other listeners kind of keep that in mind, you'll hear them individualize the characters and place them outside of a, a framework of empathy as if they almost deserve what happens to them. Um, yeah, I picked up on that. And then there's this uh, intense surveillance that comes along with the creation of these cultural products, these books and these movies like this, to this white audience that's going to consume and and really get to uh, fetishize the different relationships that the main character has through her traveling between these two so-called worlds. Um, but I, just before I mute my line, I have a question for Gus. Um, I heard you say before the uh, the reading started that you didn't like uh, Frantz Fanon's uh, Wretched of the Earth. Uh, I would love to hear why. 
We talked about that uh, for months over the summer. I'm still salty about it because I hurt my back in the middle of that book club and that delayed us finishing the book. It ended up taking months. Uh, I've read multiple books by Fanon. I've not liked any of them. And we talked about it extensively. Anybody who wants the, and somebody emailed me about that this weekend. I, I got riled up all again. Uh, you can go back in the archives and listen to the, the book study session on the wretched of the earth uh, as much as you can tolerate. And you can hear hours of me extensively explaining as we go through the book, uh, what my issues are with uh, Franz Fanon's writing victim of white supremacy. Franz Fanon, he has VGQ as well, which I said repeatedly last summer uh any other folks uh have commentary that we missed completely anybody that have a hand up that we've not heard from at all can i be heard yes sir greetings everyone uh well uh it starts off <laughs> with a lot of uh drama uh, and uh i would say uh to uh chime in on the question on the group question uh that always interests uh white people uh they by creating this global system of racist white supremacy it's going to have a response from its victims and it's going to be chaos and they enjoy watching their victims squirm and cut the fool or, uh or whatever uh that's non-constructive uh, they're going to uh, automatically enjoy it, uh, whether it's uh, in a book, real life happening, or in a movie, uh, as far as that, as far as that concern. And, uh, uh, and we haven't even gotten to the uh, issue where uh, one of the victims is having sex with a, uh, a white person. Uh, they certainly enjoy that because they actually control that uh, type of relationship. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, give some past references on white people uh, enjoying uh, uh, movies and books of this nature, uh, Boys in the Hood. I actually saw uh, a critic, a professional white critic, cry over the idea of watching the movie itself. And it had, it had similarities. It even had a constructive father in 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 the movie, like is like in that been depicted in this book. Uh, uh, but white people don't mind with uh, uh, dealing with that those type of situations as long as they know there's not going to be a constructive answer. It's not going to be an answer to the problem of racism, white supremacy. It's not going to provide an answer, or if if uh, whatever black people are doing or non-white people are doing is not going to provide an answer, they okay with it. They're okay with it. Uh, uh, fully, you know, as, as far as, as far as that concern. Uh, in in contrast, I, I can recall uh, uh, Mr. Fuller stating that he can name on one hand on a number of white people that have that have uh, questioned him or consulted him on his book, <laughs> because I think I suspect it has the potential of having the answer to the problem. And uh, that's all I can say right now. Thank you. Appreciate that retired firefighter uh, mentioning uh, Lawrence Fishburne's standout role uh, in Boys in the Hood. Uh, 
If there are other folks, if you have commentary, the number again, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you want to email your commentary, that will work as well. We'll read your commentary as we proceed. Uh, funny that he mentioned uh, Boys in the Hood. Uh, they say like minds think alike. I think sometimes uh, when you are following logic, people who are following logic sometimes take similar paths. Uh, but I had been listening to interviews and reading about this book and finding out, you know, what it was about uh, once it was mentioned to me by a listener, as I explained. And I've read, you know, I haven't read this book before, but I've read the first 2.5 chapters now and what I've heard I told a listener beforehand once I started getting an inkling of what this book was about and I said "Ooh, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this book we can we can read for counter racist purposes to study why this book was on the bestseller list for 38 weeks but this is not going to be in Gus's top 10 I do not think I'm going to enjoy this book much like France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth or Black Skin White Mask and you could put a cowbell there as well a lot of similarities uh, but I said, New Jack City, Boys in the Hood, Precious, The Writings of Iceberg Slim, Menace to Society, Poetic Justice, Tupac, True to the Game, uh, that's a Terry Woods novel some folks I'm sure are familiar with, Luke Cage, the comic or the television series, The Wire, you can put all that and probably tons of other films that I forgot, books all of that Negro trauma genre, I am done with all of that. I am not interested in seeing any of that type of content ever again in life. Any of that. None of that makes me feel good to be a black person. Most of that doesn't blame white people for the position that we're in. And even the ones, for the most part, that do make an effort, boys in the hood, you still end up having to sit through two hours or 300 pages of just black trauma, black trauma, black trauma. I'm not interested in that at all. In fact, let me pause for my critique. When uh, this book started, I had to keep reminding myself that this is young adult literature. I don't have children, so I don't know the criterion for the criteria for determining what qualifies as young adult literature. It's been my experience that white people are ecstatic, <laughs> that they are absolutely uh sprinting to put explicit content stickers on many, many black people's albums, CDs, recordings down through the years. I went back to look at the book to see if there an explicit content sticker on the front of the book. We've read 2.5 chapters, most of it filled with raunch and filth, <laughs> cursing it. I mean, hey, I am not in the choir. I have done my share of cursing and profanity uh, a smidgen on the air, but for the most part, no. But I've done my share of cursing uh, in my years on the planet. But this is supposed to be young adult literature. Is is young adult literature generally like the first two chapters? If you go to the store right now and say, hey, what's the top 10 books on the young adult literature list? If you go grab them, are they going to be chock filled with like narcotics and drinking and curse words every other paragraph for the first like two, three chapters. I just, <laughs> I had to keep reminding myself, like, is this young adult literature? How would I feel if I had a 14? And I'm remembering because when I was doing my research, they would show pictures of black teens, not black 20 year olds, not black college students, 
black 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds gleeful just holding this book and in line and waiting to meet Miss Thomas and thank her so much. And hey, reading is more important than watching television. So reading is great. But I mean, wow, <laughs> this is what is people that have parents. Let's put it out that way. You can be thinking on this when I in my commentary. If we have any parents based on what you heard, how do you feel about having your 14 year old read this book? If you got uh, young teens, 14, 15, 13, how would you feel uh, about your young teen teenager reading this book just hang that parents can respond later other things that i wanted to make sure when they started this book they said that this the, the narrator that this was being performed by and they gave the narrator's name which i can get in a second but that just stood out to me because i think most of the time all the years that we've heard different audiobooks most of the time they will just say read by or narrated by in most instances i don't think they say performed by but that just could be me making an error. Uh, sobriety would be best. I can't say that enough. All this bad stuff uh, happening, the shootings and what have you. I felt traumatized just reading. We got, we didn't even finish the third chapter and we've already had three shootings narrated in a young adult book, no less. I just, I, I don't understand. I don't understand uh, why this would be marketed unless we're in a system of white supremacy. And hey, this is the way we want you to think. I think Dr. Curry talks about this on a regular basis, he should be back on the program later this month where the only way that we can think about and understand black existence, black people, period, is through death, particularly black males, uh, even though one of the characters, Natasha, that died here, black female. But I mean, uh, death, that's the only way that we can think about uh, black people is death. Tupac, dead black artist and Michael Brown Jr. And go back and recount every black person that's died over the last uh, 25 years and that's, that's just what you want young folks to think about not it could be something else yes you do have a lot of black suffering and death in the system of white supremacy but it could be something else this could be changed I don't think just having people mire and think about black death all the time I don't think that's healthy I don't think that's inspiring and I do not think that that's going to solve the problem of racism white supremacy I think that that can just have you in a state of paralysis and sadness and just that's the only way that you can conceive of and think of black people is death and dying and suffering that ends up being the totality of of how you view or think about what black existence can be uh let's see other things that stood out in the text notes that i took rather The portion the portion it seemed like at times Star was being ridiculed and at times she was being there was perhaps envy that she was going to the white school like the portion I think it's uh, Kenya where she's talking and she says uh, what do you think I turned around and asked if she had a problem when she's going to fight this chick over Devante, she's dancing with this other guy. She says, I was going to fight it, or asked if she had a problem with me. Old trick going to say, I wasn't even talking about you, knowing she was. You're so lucky you go to that white people's school and don't have to deal with hoes like that. It seemed like there were a few moments where you got lines like that. Now, they did get their jabs in later and saying, you know, the white parties don't count out in the suburbs and all that stuff. It seems like she gets picked on for that. And then there's also some kind of envy uh, from some of her friends that she's out there. Uh, next. 
let's see. Yeah, the drugs and stuff. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm totally done. I'm totally over. I'm not trying to run from. I would be curious with all of the, because I mean, it's tons of books with black drug sellers, black drug dealers. Certainly, it's tons of films, but it's tons of books. It's no shortage of books. We do not need any more books uh, portraying talking about black drug dealers. Uh, black victims of gun violence, drug. We do not need any more books on that, even young adult versions. There are tons of those already. And I think a part of that is just, in my mind, uh, whites are very comfortable with this sort of depiction of blackness. They have been for a long time. I would be surprised. It would pique my interest if they are cranking out uh, books, uh, young adult literature featuring white families of opioid addicts. And all of their problems going out thiefing to support their habit. Now, when they start cranking out books like that, you will have Gus T's attention and that'll be on our book club like immediately. Uh, next. The part where they were talking about running out of the party and uh, Star, she says, I don't try to see who got shot or who did it. You can't snitch if you don't know anything. Again, a lot of this just seems like the the stale uh, stereo Negro stereotypes that are perpetrated. In my view, based on evidence, the kings and queens of no snitching are racist man, racist woman, and racist child. They run around and commit crimes of all type, including killing people, stealing, enslaving, raping, terrorism, and don't snitch all day long. That's why you have these police shootings uh, where white people know that their colleagues are doing incorrect things and killing folks and Daniel Holtzko and all this stuff, and they don't say anything. Whites are the kings and queens of not snitching, and that should not be anything that gets attached to black people as though we champion this or we are the ones who promote this. Nobody does the no snitching policy better than racist man, racist woman, racist child. I will stop there. I will put my question out again. And particularly if we have parents that are familiar, like if you purchase books for your children or if you have teens, so you're familiar with young adult literature and what their standards are, what the content generally looks like. Any black parents, if you're a parent, don't be a spectator on this one. Get on the line. If you are a black parent, how would you feel about having your 13-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old reading this book based on what we heard in the first two and a half chapters? Thomas in New York? Yes, I just went in the room and I asked my daughters, and um, both of them said that they have this book. Well, my 16-year-old said that she got it in school, and she hasn't read it yet. And my um, my 13-year-old said um, her school gave it to her in an e-book form, and um, she got through the first chapter. So I said, well, what did you think about it? She said, well, they were at this party, and they were using a lot of bad words, and they were doing a lot of bad things, but, you know, I mean, so I said, well, I mean, have you read other books like that? She said, that's how all the books are these days. So I said, oh, okay. So I I just, you know, left it alone. I'm not even going to touch on it until I, I get off the phone and speak to my wife and everything. But I just feel like, wow. It's, and then I come from the ever where, you know, we had NWA. I mean, I know what it, you know, you're going to listen to the music with the curses. I mean, it is, it is what it is. Um, I feel like this is one of those books that keep us in the same position. I would like a book where where, where we win at the end. You know, it, we're not constantly just, just dealing with the everyday stuff that we all deal with or, or uh, we all know is going on. We can't do anything about 
Uh, I want to be forward-minded and, and think, you know, futuristic. Like, let's be in the future sometimes, you know. So this is one of them books that just keeps us in the present and the past. Because this, is, this has been our history. Uh, either they did it to us or we did it to each other. And um, I just, that's what I, I feel about this book. Um, I didn't even correlate the Boys in the Hood um, to it. And, it, it, man, that fits really good. Because Lars Fishburne did do an excellent job on being a good role model and a, a stand-up father. And her father seems to be the same way. I thought that the boyfriend was white, but I didn't want to make that a, you know, that she didn't say that. But now that you guys kind of hinted at it, that's a, probably the number one reason why white people like this book. And I would like to see how it, her, that plays into the decision she makes as far as uh, testifying and how she views if that, if that this white character is able to, um, to control her views um, on this subject, you know, be, you know, from, you know, being that he wasn't there, but of course she's going to tell him what happened. Um, but um, yeah, that's all I want to say. Thank you guys. Other parents, uh, would you, how would you feel about your child, young teen reading this text or if they've had uh, any contact with this book uh, or actually hang on one second, Red in Nevada, since we haven't heard from you at all. Red in Nevada, do you have commentary? Um, well, hello. There's a little bit of y'all's commentary. And um, I just want to say, even though I'm not a parent, um, it's really funny that the question came up because I I was actually going to give the book, um, until we were done with the book, say I was going to give it to my younger cousin, and I had asked his, but I wanted to at least read, I read like the first page, and I had sent my cousin a picture of the first page, and I'm like, well, I guess I can't really give this book to, you know, your son. She was like, yeah, it's a bit much. So um, I know when I was in school, I did not, um, read books that had all types of cussing, especially, you know, just coming right out with cussing and, um, you know, drug use and also alcohol in it. Um, but that's all I'll add for now. I'll meet my line. Indeed. Parents, especially. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Retired firefighter. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I would, I would say, uh, any uh, type of uh, reading uh, of uh, this book or something similar, uh, I, I would say that it should be read but supervised. It should be supervised, you know. Whereas possibly to give an example, the uh, the uh, quote unquote child would have uh, a book, and the uh, the parent or whoever that uh, that uh, "Quote unquote adult is, uh, and they're reading it together. Uh, once again, I can see how it could be things of this nature could be very popular with white people uh, because they they invest upon a lot of foolishness. Uh, as, that's that's a result of the system of racist white supremacy uh, through the tunes that uh, young people that's popular with young people." They they bestow the uh, the quote unquote I, 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 and I'm I'm like cringing to use this word the artists uh, they they give the, they either give them a lot of money or give the facade 
that they have a, a lot of money uh, uh, and make it very popular because why uh, it, 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 to me, it's logical, uh, uh that, uh, because it, it, it's not an answer to solving the problem. And, and if it's not an answer, it's actually helping the, it's actually helping the problem. And, uh, I can see that being very, very shrewd and very, uh, very much a, a strategy, uh, in, in this refinement period that we're in. That's, that's what I have to say. Thank you. Folks have other comments, certainly feel free, but I certainly wanted to hear if we have any other parents uh, who have thoughts about how you would feel if you have uh, a teen, younger teen, who would be reading this book for leisure or for school. Certainly, if we have any younger folks, if you read this book, had to read it for school, or just read it on your own, would love to hear your commentary uh, as well. And just one other quick thing I just want to say about the, the profanity and the alcohol consumption, underage drinking, drug consumption, and all of that uh, for a book that is supposed to be and is marketed as a young adult novel, uh, that I think it is important. Uh, I, I'm not saying that folks are, about, it's not about being a prude. It's not about uh, pretending that younger people are not cursing already or not listening to music with profanity or drug references, alcohol references. Certainly if they're listening to uh, Drake, as was mentioned in the book or Tupac or whatever it is, they're hearing a lot of that stuff or all of that stuff anyway. Uh, I would just say that I do think it is important. I know Dr. Welsing talked about this. Minister Malcolm talked about this. He was mentioned in the text as well. I think aspiring for the best. When we talk about black self-respect, the best that you would like to see of black people, being a foul mouth, alcohol swigging, drug consuming fornicator, that is not what I you know, envision when I think of black people being their best or being inspired by something that they read. Stories are very, very powerful, uh, and that can really shift how you think about yourself, how you think about the world. And I think you could I think you could probably tell the same story uh, without all of the profanity in every other paragraph. I think you could probably accomplish it without it having to be filled with such uh filth i think the i think the young people are exposed to enough profanity anyway i think this could be one where hey we don't have to do all that we can use our brain computer and still tell a very entertaining engaging story we have other folks who had comments particularly parents can i be heard yes sir yes uh as a parent um i would say uh i don't think our I don't feel like our agency as parents allows us to, you know, completely stop our children from coming in contact with these things. I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old, so not preteens yet, but if they were teenagers, I would do, and just because this book is out, I would do everything I can to make sure this book is avoided and until uh, I can educate them to a sufficient level to where I feel comfortable they can engage uh, such deviant, deviant cultural products. Uh, that's, that's all I have to say. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Another great, uh, I guess, reminder uh, or encouragement, you can think of it that way, uh, to be looking for alternatives so that your children do not have to go through the public school system. Uh, that way you can pick the literature that you want. Or if you say, hey, I have my 13-year-old, and yes, we will read 
The Hate You Give, Angie Thomas, as a part of our homeschooling program, but we'll read it together. And then you can go through and ask questions and, you know, have a very different take uh, on the text. Very, very different from what I, I suspect the reading of this book would be in the public school. And I would I would absolutely love it. It's, we'll probably be reading this book for more than six weeks. I would love it if we have any parents, if your child had to read this book, if we have educators and you know how this book is taught in school. I would absolutely love to know more about how white female teachers teach this book in school to black students. In fact, we should all think about that as we march through the text. Do we have other folks who have comments? Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I'm a grandparent of a 14-year-old and just recently uh, finished homeschooling him in history and geography. And although some of those other names that I mentioned, uh, Jacqueline Woodson and Mildred Taylor, uh, would be uh, recommended reading for young adults. Uh, this, it does uh, bring up some antennas because of the uh, profanity, but I don't think that that alone should uh, stop this material from being disseminated, but um, it's it's very difficult to get uh, fourteen year olds to read. Period, and I think that uh, some of these curse words and these slangs like stink eye or whatever, you know, we probably don't know much about. But these words and phrases that she's centering in on that group, you know, is probably uh, would get their attention and maybe encourage them to read. Uh, a little more. But I also wanted to point out that Star <clears throat> seemed to, uh, her mental health, it seems like she should have received some type of counseling uh, even after the first drive-by shooting where her young uh, uh, childhood friend was killed because it seems like you know um, it's not much emphasis put on uh, mental health uh, for victims of, you know, uh, black victims of the same type of uh, police brutality and uh, shootings of unarmed black people. And uh, I just thought that that should have been mentioned. And I'll meet my line on that. Thanks. Black mental health. Appreciate that, uh, Mr. Demery, for black mental health. Uh, I feel compelled to say, I, I keep thinking of Harry Potter, especially since it was mentioned in this book. I think Harry Potter is considered young adult literature. And I don't recall Harry Potter, Harry Potter having any difficulties getting young people engaged, especially young white readers, getting them engaged or getting them to read. I don't recall any difficulties around that at all. And it's not filled with profanities and drug use and alcohol and fornicating. I don't think any of the seven, uh, unless I've been mistaken, I don't think they're filled with that. And I think Harry Potter, they did okay selling books and getting a few, at least a couple people to read a book or two. Any other comments folks had? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, I just wanted to build off of that point. Uh, the last caller just made, 
in that story, we, we literally went from two black deaths, and I mean, seven minutes later, we were talking about uh, regular or crispy bacon or something like that. We were talking about breakfast food. So the, the mental health was definitely missing, and I think in their cultural products, white people like to see uh, black people deal with intense amounts of trauma in these particularly dignified and dehumanizing ways. Uh, thank you. Indeed, indeed. Uh, any other comments? Folks want to make sure they get in based on the first portion that we heard. Oh, no, uh, what I be heard? Oh, go ahead, bro. Retired firefighter. Oh, oh, uh, I was I was just going to make a very short comment. Just, just it seems to be just a method of. Uh, stumbling and bumbling through each uh, episode uh, and the only goal it appears to be is to survive through the process. Nothing about solving problems, uh, 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 identifying uh, uh, problems, identifying the main problem, and then going about the means to solving problems is uh, where I would say would be the ultimate. And uh, this is not going to be the case. Uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thomas in New York. Oh, yeah. I just want to say, I, I personally don't have a problem with my kids reading this book. Um, I feel like they don't heard all these words and they know all this stuff. They got the internet. Like, I, mean, I listen to the conversation the kids have when I'm on the train. And it's like, wow. You know, I look at the relationships that the kids are in at a young age, thank God my kids aren't in any, but I mean, they've already decided, you know, they're, they're not going to be, um, you know, going, you know, the path of their parents, you know, so it's, it's, this is reality. Just like when we used to listen to the music and they had curses and it was talking about the stuff that was really happening. I just don't think that um, it's constructive, um, but, I don't have a problem with my kids at their age listening to reading this book. Right on, right on. Uh, did we? Oh, I heard somebody. Yes, I wanted to say one last thing that uh, she was mentioned. Seven, seven was uh, a half brother, and her mother and her father had been together since high school, but then seven was five months, maybe six months older than she was. So it would indicate that uh, Big Mav, uh, you know, wasn't exactly, uh, uh, you know, without uh, malice as far as, you know, sleeping around. I think that's what, you know, uh, she's trying to put out there is that, you know, uh, you know, black people, you know, you could have an uncle the same age as you are, all of this type of stuff. Somebody cross town could be, you know, have another family. Your father could have another family cross town. And, you know, that's kind of unflattering. And it was probably, I don't know if it was necessary to, you know, do all of that. I just, I'll my line. Indeed. 
Uh, any other folks, comments they want to make sure that they get in as we proceed? Everybody satisfied? Right, we will pick back up. Uh, we are on chapter three. Uh, we have not even gotten to the portion where she's around her mostly white classmates and her white boyfriend, who I think his name is Chris. We haven't even gotten to all that, so it'll be an interesting contrast to see how the language shifts uh, and the empathy that one of our callers mentioned, how you don't really, uh, he felt, I think he, he said it was basically written in a way where you would perhaps not empathize with some of these uh, black characters when these bad things happen, uh, even the shootings and what have you would think in some way that they deserved it because of their moral flaws or character flaws. We'll see if that continues or changes when we get to the white environment, but we will continue. Uh, we're in chapter three. Uh, this is Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. I'm trying to see if I can get you the, or at least close to where we are uh, in chapter three. Uh, the portion right after they were talking about the turkey bacon or regular bacon uh, and people are upset on Twitter and she star, she was saying that she normally would speak up and be the loudest voice, but she says, now I am that person and I'm too afraid to speak. And that's where we're picking up at. So we're chapter three context of white supremacy, Angie Thomas's the hate you give. I want to stay home and watch the fresh Prince of Bel Air, my favorite show ever hands down. I think I know every episode word for word. Yeah, it's hilarious, but it's also like seeing parts of my life on screen. I even relate to the theme song. A couple of gang members who were up to no good made trouble in my neighborhood and killed Natasha. My parents got scared, and although they didn't send me to my aunt and uncle in a rich neighborhood, they sent me to a bougie private school. I just wish I could be myself at Williamson, like Will was himself in Bel Air. I kind of want to stay home so I can return Chris's calls, too. After last night, it feels stupid to be mad at him. Or I could call Haley and Maya. Those girls Kenya claims don't count as my friends. I guess I can see why she says that. I never invite them over. Why would I? They live in many mansions. My house is just many. I made the mistake of inviting them to a sleepover in seventh grade. Mama was going to let us do our nails, stay up all night, and eat as much pizza as we wanted. It was going to be as awesome as those weekends we had at Haley's, the ones we still have sometimes. I invited Kenya, too, so I could finally hang out with all three of them at once. Haley didn't come. Her dad didn't want her spending the night in the ghetto. I overheard my parents say that. Maya came, but ended up asking her parents to come get her that night. There was a drive-by around the corner, and the gunshots scared her. That's when I realized Williamson is one world, and Garden Heights is another, and I have to keep them separate. It doesn't matter what I'm thinking about doing today, though. My parents have their own plans for me. Mama tells me I'm going to the store with Daddy. Before Seven leaves for work, he comes to my room in his Best Buy polo and khakis and hugs me. Love you, he says. See, that's why I hate it when somebody dies. People do stuff they wouldn't usually do. 
Even Mama hugs me longer and tighter with more sympathy than just because in it. Sakani, on the other hand, steals bacon off my plate, looks at my phone, and purposely steps on my foot on his way out. I love him for it. I bring a bowl of dog food and leftover bacon outside to our pit bull, Bricks. Daddy gave him his name, cause he's always been as heavy as some bricks. Soon as he sees me, he jumps and fights to break free from his chain. And when I get close enough, his hyper butt jumps up my legs, nearly taking me down. Get! I say. He crouches onto the grass and stares up at me, whimpering with wide puppy dog eyes the Bricks version of an apology. I know pit bulls can be aggressive, but Bricks is a baby most of the time, a big baby. Now, if somebody tries to break in our house or something, they won't meet the baby Bricks. While I feed Bricks and refill his water bowl, Daddy picks bunches of collard greens from his garden. He cuts roses that have blooms as big as my palms. Daddy spends hours out here every night, planting, tilling, and talking. He claims a good garden needs good conversation. About 30 minutes later, we're riding in his truck with the windows down. On the radio, Marvin Gaye asks, what's going on? It's still dark out, though the sun peeks through the clouds, and hardly anybody is outside. This early in the morning, it's easy to hear the rumbling of 18-wheelers on the freeway. Daddy hums to Marvin, but he couldn't carry a tune if it came in a box. He's wearing a Lakers jersey and no shirt underneath, revealing tattoos all over his arms. One of my baby photos smiles back at me, permanently etched on his arm with something to live for, something to die for, written beneath it. Seven and Sakani are on his other arm with the same words beneath them. Love letters in the simplest form. You want to talk about last night some more? He asks. Nah. Aight. Whenever you want. Another love letter in the simplest form. We turn on to Marigold Avenue, where Garden Heights is waking up. Some ladies wearing floral headscarves come out the laundromat, carrying big baskets of clothes. Mr. Reuben unlocks the chains on his restaurant. His nephew, Tim, the cook, leans against the wall and wipes sleep from his eyes. Ms. Yvette yawns as she goes in her beauty shop. The lights are on at Top Shelf Spirits and Wine, but they're always on. Daddy parks in front of Carter's Grocery, our family store. Daddy bought it when I was nine, after the former owner, Mr. Wyatt, left Garden Heights to go sit on the beach all day, watching pretty women. Mr. Wyatt's words, not mine. Mr. Wyatt was the only person who would hire Daddy when he got out of prison, and he later said Daddy was the only person he trusted to run the store. Compared to the Walmart on the east side of Garden Heights, our grocery is tiny. White painted metal bars protect the windows and door. They make the store resemble a jail. Mr. Lewis from the barbershop next door stands out front, his arms folded over his big belly. He sets his narrowed eyes on Daddy. Daddy sighs. Here we go. We hop out. Mr. Lewis gives some of the best haircuts in Garden Heights. Sakani's high-top fade proves it. 
but Mr. Lewis himself wears an untidy afro. His stomach blocks his view of his feet, and since his wife passed, nobody tells him that his pants are too short and his socks don't always match. Today one is striped and the other is argyle. The store used to open at 5.55 on the dot, he says. 5.55. It's 6.05. Daddy unlocks the front door. I know, Mr. Lewis, but I told you, I'm not running the store the same way Wyatt did. It sure is obvious. First you take down his pictures. Who the hell replaces the picture of Dr. King with some nobody? Huey Newton ain't a nobody. He ain't Dr. King. Then you hire thugs to work up in here. I heard that Khalil boy got himself killed last night. He was probably selling that stuff. Mr. Lewis looks from Daddy's basketball jersey to his tattoos. Wonder where he get that idea from. Daddy's jaw tightens. Star, turn the coffee pot on for Mr. Lewis. So he can get the hell out of here, I say to myself, finishing Daddy's sentence for him. I flick the switch on the coffee pot at the self-serve table, which Huey Newton watches over from a photograph, his fist raised for black power. I'm supposed to replace the filter and put new coffee and water in, but for talking about Khalil, Mr. Lewis gets coffee made from day-old grounds. He limps through the aisles and gets a honey bun, an apple, and a pack of hog-head cheese. He gives me the honey bun, Eat it up, girl, and you better not overcook it. I leave it in the microwave until the plastic wrapper swells and pops open. Mr. Lewis eats it soon as I take it out. That thing hot! He chews and blows at the same time. You heated it too long, girl! About to burn my mouth! When Mr. Lewis leaves, Daddy winks at me. The usual customers come in, like Mrs. Jackson, who insists on buying her greens from Daddy and nobody else. Four red-eyed guys in sagging pants buy almost every bag of chips we have. Daddy tells them it's too early to be that blazed, and they laugh way too hard. One of them licks his next blunt as they leave. Around 11, Mrs. Rooks buys some roses and snacks for her bridge club meeting. She has droopy eyes and gold plating on her front teeth. Her wig is gold-colored, too. Y'all need to get some lotto tickets up in here, baby, she says, as Daddy rings her up and I bag her stuff. Tonight is at 300 million. Daddy smiles. For real? What would you do with all that money, Mrs. Rooks? Shit, baby. The question is what I wouldn't do with all that money. Lord knows I'd get on the first plane out of here. Daddy laughs. Is that right? Then who gonna make red velvet cakes for us? Somebody else, cause I'd be gone. She points to the display of cigarettes behind us. Baby, hand me a pack of them Newports. Those are Nana's favorites, too. They used to be Daddy's favorites before I begged him to quit. I grab a pack and pass it to Mrs. Rooks. She's staring at me moments after, patting the pack against her palm and I wait for it, the sympathy. Baby, I heard what happened to Rosalie's grand boy, she says. I'm so sorry. Y'all used to be friends, didn't you? 
the used to stings. But I just say to Mrs. Rooks, Yes, ma'am. Hmm, she shakes her head. Lord have mercy. My heart about broke when I heard. I tried to go over there and see Rosalie last night, but so many people were already at the house. Poor Rosalie. All she going through, and now this. Barbara said Rosalie not sure how she gonna pay the burying. We talking about raising some money. Think you can help us out, Maverick? Oh, yeah. Let me know what y'all need, and it's done. She flashes those gold teeth in a smile. Boy, it's good to see where the Lord done brought you. Your mama would be proud. Daddy nods heavily. Grandma's been gone ten years, long enough that Daddy doesn't cry every day. But such a short while ago that if someone brings her up, it brings him down. And look at this girl, Mrs. Rooks says, eyeing me. Every bit of Lisa. Maverick, you better watch out. These little boys around here gonna be trying it. No, they better watch out. You know I ain't having that. She can't date till she's 40. My hand drifts to my pocket, thinking of Chris and his texts. Shit, I left my phone at home. Needless to say, Daddy doesn't know a thing about Chris. We've been together over a year now. Seven knows because he met Chris at school, and Mama figured it out when Chris would always visit me at Uncle Carlos's house, claiming he was my friend. One day, she and Uncle Carlos walked in on us kissing, and they pointed out that friends don't kiss each other like that. I've never seen Chris get so red in my life. She and Seven are okay with me dating Chris, although if it was up to Seven, I'd become a nun. But whatever. I can't get the guts to tell Daddy, though. And it's not just because he doesn't want me dating yet. The bigger issue is that Chris is white. At first I thought my mom might say something about it, but she was like, he could be polka dot as long as he's not a criminal and he's treating you right. Daddy, on the other hand, rants about how Halle Berry act like she can't get with brothers anymore and how messed up that is. I mean, anytime he finds out a black person is with a white person, suddenly something's wrong with them. I don't want him looking at me like that. Luckily, Mama hasn't told him. She refuses to get in the middle of that fight. My boyfriend, my responsibility to tell Daddy. Mrs. Rooks leaves. Seconds later, the bell clangs. Kenya struts into the store. Her kicks are cute bazooka joe nike dunks that i haven't added to my collection kenya always wears fly sneakers she goes to get her usual from the aisles hey star hey uncle maverick hey kenya daddy answers even though he's not her uncle but her brother's dad you good she comes back with a jumbo bag of hot cheetos and a sprite yeah my mama want to know if my brother spent the night with y'all. There she goes calling Seven my brother, like she's the only one who can claim him. It's annoying as hell. Tell your mama I'll call her later, Daddy says. Okay. Kenya pays for her stuff and makes eye contact with me. She jerks her head a little to the side. I'm going to sweep the aisles, I tell Daddy. 
Kenya follows me. I grab the broom and go to the produce aisle on the other side of the store. Some grapes have spilled out from those red-eyed guys sampling before buying. I barely start sweeping before Kenya starts talking. I heard about Khalil, she says. I'm so sorry, Star. You okay? I make myself nod. I just can't believe it, you know? It had been a while since I saw him, but it hurts. Kenya says what I can't. Yeah. Fuck. I feel the tears coming. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. I kind of hoped he'd be in here when I walked in, she says softly, like he used to be, bagging groceries in that ugly apron. The green one, I mutter. Yeah, talking about how women love a man in uniform. I stare at the floor. If I cry now, I may never stop. Kenya pops her hot Cheetos open and holds the bag toward me. Comfort food. I reach in and get a couple. Thanks. No problem. We munch on Cheetos. Khalil's supposed to be here with us. So, um, I say, and my voice is all rough. You and Danasia got into it last night? Girl, she sounds like she's been waiting to drop this story for hours. Devante came over to me right before it got crazy. He asked for my number. I thought he was Danasia's boyfriend. Devante not the type to be tied down. Anyway, Danasia walked over to start something, but the shots went off. We ended up running down the same street, and I clocked her ass. It was so funny. You should have seen it. I would have rather seen that instead of Officer 115 or Khalil staring at the sky or all that blood. My stomach twists again. Kenya waves her hand in front of me. Hey, you okay? I blink Khalil in that cop away. Yeah, I'm good. You sure? You real quiet. Yeah. She lets it drop, and I let her tell me about the second round she has planned for Danasia. Daddy calls me up front. When I get there, he hands me a 20. Give me some beef ribs from Reuben's, and I want... Potato salad and fried okra, I say. That's what he always has on Saturdays. He kisses my cheek. You know your daddy. Get whatever you want, baby. Kenya follows me out the store. We wait for a car to pass. The music blasting and the driver reclined so far back that only the tip of his nose seems to nod to the song. We cross the street to Rubens. The smoky aroma hits us on the sidewalk, and a blues song pours outside. Inside, the walls are covered with photographs of civil rights leaders, politicians, and celebrities who have eaten here, like James Brown, and pre-heart bypass Bill Clinton. There's a picture of Dr. King and a much younger Mr. Rubin. A bulletproof partition separates the customers from the cashier. I fan myself after a few minutes in line. 
The air conditioner in the window stopped working months ago, and the smoker heats up the whole building. When we get to the front of the line, Mr. Rubin greets us with a gap-toothed smile from behind the partition. Hey, Star and Kenya, how y'all doing? Mr. Rubin is one of the only people around here who actually calls me by my name. He remembers everybody's name somehow. Hey, Mr. Rubin, I say. My daddy wants his usual. He writes it on a pad. All right. Beefs, tater salad, okra. Y'all want fried barbecue wings and fries? An extra sauce for you, star baby? He remembers everybody's usual orders, too, somehow. Yes, sir, we say. All right. Y'all been staying out of trouble? Yes, sir, Kenya lies with ease. How about some pound cake on the house, then? Reward for good behavior. We say yeah and thank him. But see, Mr. Rubin could know about Kenya's fight and would offer her pound cake regardless. He's nice like that. He gives kids free meals if they bring in their report cards. If it's a good one, he'll make a copy and put it on the all-star wall. If it's bad, as long as they own up to it and promise to do better, he'll still give them a meal. It's gonna take about 15 minutes, he says. That means sit and wait till your number is called. We find a table next to some white guys. You rarely see white people in Garden Heights, but when you do, they're usually at Rubens. The men watch the news on the box TV in the corner of the ceiling. I munch on some of Kenya's hot Cheetos. They would taste much better with cheese sauce on them. Has there been anything on the news about Khalil? She pays more attention to her phone. Yeah, like I watch the news. I think I saw something on Twitter, though. I wait. Between a story about a bad car accident on the freeway and a garbage bag of live puppies that was found in a park, there's a short story about an officer-involved shooting that is being investigated. They don't even say Khalil's name. Some bullshit. We get our food and head back to the store. Right as we cross the street, a gray BMW pulls up beside us, bass thumping inside like the car has a heartbeat. The driver's side window rolls down, smoke drifts out, and the male, 300-pound version of Kenya smiles at us. What up, queens? Kenya leans in through the window and kisses his cheek. Hey, daddy. Hey, star star, he says. Not gonna say hey to your uncle? You ain't my uncle, I wanna say. You ain't shit to me. And if you touch my brother again, I'll... Hey, King, I finally mumble. His smile fades like he hears my thoughts. He puffs on a cigar and blows smoke from the corner of his mouth. Two tears are tattooed under his left eye. Two lives he's taken, at least. I see y'all been to Rubens. Here. He holds out two fat rolls of money. Make up for whatever y'all spent. Kenya takes one easily, but I'm not touching that dirty money. No thanks. Go on, queen. 
King winks. Take some money from your godfather. Nah, she good, Daddy says. He walks toward us. Daddy leans against the car window so he's eye-level with King and gives him one of those guy handshakes with so many movements you wonder how they remember it. Big Mav, Kenya's dad says with a grin. What up, King? Don't call me that shit. Daddy doesn't say it loudly or angrily. But in the same way, I would tell somebody not to put onions or mayo on my burger. Daddy once told me that King's parents named him after the same gang he later joined. And that's why a name is important. It defines you. King became a king lord when he took his first breath. I was just giving my goddaughter some pocket change, King says. I heard what happened to her little homie. That's fucked up. Yeah, you know how it is, Daddy says. Popo shoot first, ask questions later. No doubt, they worse than us sometimes. King chuckles. But hey, on some business shit. I got a package coming, need somewhere to keep it. Got too many eyes on Aisha's house. I already told you that shit ain't going down here. King rubs his beard. Oh. Okay. So, folks get out the game, forget where they come from. Forget that if it wasn't for my money, they wouldn't have their little store. And if it wasn't for me, you'd be locked up. Three years, state pen. Remember that shit? I don't owe you nothing. Daddy leans onto the window and says, But if you touch seven again, I'll owe you an ass whooping. Remember that, now that you done moved back in with his mama. King sucks his teeth. Kenya, get in the car. But daddy, I said, get your ass in the car. Kenya mumbles bye to me. She goes around to the passenger side and hops in. Hi, Big Mav. So it's like that? King says. Daddy straightens up. It's exactly like that. All right, then. You just make sure your ass don't get out of line. Ain't no telling what I'll do. The BMW peels out. Context of white supremacy. That is the end of chapter three. The Hate You Give, Angie Thomas will pick up. We'll be at the very beginning of chapter four uh, for next <laughs> Man, I'm just looking at chapter four, and that starts uh, going back to Natasha's uh, gang shooting. Uh, one trauma to the next. Number to dial 641715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you have commentary, questions, uh, again, if we have parents, how would you feel about your 13-year-old, 14-year-old reading this book for leisure or for class? Uh, and if certainly, if we have uh, any educators, if you are familiar with how this book is taught, particularly how this book is taught by white female teachers, man, would love to hear that. Uh, and or if we have uh, any uh, younger Black people, younger black students, uh, if you 
read this book for a class or for leisure, would love to hear your commentary as well. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, man, this second session, man. So I don't know if any other uh, callers picked up on this, but for the second time, I heard the father really kind of uh, dishonored with the language. So in the first section, she said she was cursed with her father's eyebrows. And then after that, she said that um, um, that she lied to him about having a boyfriend. And the, the family was kind of complicit in deceiving the father because of how he feels about racial things. I thought that was important. Um, there, and then there's this other thing that I noticed as well, the commodification of, of black heroes. So uh, a lot of the pictures, if you go on eBay or if you try to buy pictures of black heroes, uh, painted art, very hard to find, very expensive. And white people love buying pictures of Tupac and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you know, these photos that they kept referencing throughout her time. Uh, traveling with her father. I thought that was very important to when they were arguing about Huey Newton and putting up pictures of uh, people in the past. And then there was also, there's also this pop cultural thing she does and constantly, constantly referencing things like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as a kind of explanatory power, as giving it a kind of explanatory power to locate herself in the world. That That's very... That's very disheartening, uh, personally. But that's that's all I had to say. Don't you like Will Smith? Why is what's disheartening about her relating to Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Uh, for for me, it was like not uh, Will Smith is not the problem. It's just like the TV show. Um, I didn't watch that show a lot growing up, and as an adult, I've always heard that show from white people at the different jobs I've worked at. They always try to um talk to me using the show as a reference so just personally it was disheartening for me to hear that because i was like wow i've never actually heard another black like me and other other black people have never actually talked about that show and like located ourselves within it but i just thought it was interesting given how much i hear on a daily basis about how great the white people i know think this show the first prince of bel-air is and how they know all the words and things like that that was just a personal thing for me Fascinating. I'm so glad you shared. Uh, other folks uh, who have... Uh, Probably heard. Thomas in New York. <clears throat> yeah, so, yeah, I was, that was a good, yeah. And um, I think Fresh Prince, um, he kind of, that show and how it kind of correlates to this book is he had to go leave the ghetto, go to these white people to be properly educated and, and to become successful. Um, and that's the way they like to, you know, to make it look sort of different strokish. Um, she said two worlds. Um, and then she made it like one perfect white world, one dysfunctional black world. And, um, you know, problem I have is that, and, and when you have the, a book, is you can't separate these two worlds. Um, you know, this is your time to explain how, these two worlds became two different worlds. Um, this is your 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 time.
time to explain what exactly happened that created black society to be the way it is and how come the school where you go and how everyone lives in many mansions, how come that is? Um, you know, she didn't do any explanation on that at all. Um, you know, she's separating the two worlds the same way white people do. Um, you know, with, with no one taking blame, no one acknowledging the reason that the black society is dysfunctional is because of white people and the superb, white supremacy. Uh, how do you have this book? And we're in chapter three, and I haven't heard her mention racism, white supremacy one time. And it's like everything that's happening is because of racism, white supremacy. Um, that joke when the guy came in and he made the Huey Newton um, reference, um, it, it kind of reminded me of um, Cedric the Entertainer in um, Barbershop when he took a poke at Rosa Parks. Uh, it was just unnecessary. You know, why even put that in there? Uh, I don't know of black people, you know, walking in establishment, taking um, shots at other black people that's on the walls. You know, I, I've seen a lot of black establishments with pictures of pe black people that they hold in high regard on the wall. And I've never went in there or saw someone go in there and say anything bad about them. So I just, just thought that that was just thrown in there just to show more anti-blackness, which is another reason why I'm sure white people like this book. They love anti-blackness. Um, Hip-hop is their favorite music. Um, the, when you look at the characters, every character so far, and you know, like someone pointed out, um, even the father um, having these um, children with two different women around the same time, every character has been flawed. Um... And except for it's only been one white character, the cop. And so far, he hasn't been floored. No one has said that his shooting was unjustified. No one has mentioned um, that his shooting was done out of police brutality. It's just been, um, you know, he, he, was, he wasn't supposed to move. And all the, as it was playing out, he's breaking all the rules. Like, it, it was his fault, you know. Um, so I just feel like... It, it's just going to be tacky once we get to the white people, and I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, part this part for some reason reminds me of the uh, I, I, uh, I forgot her guest. I forgot her name. Uh, she was a former guest uh, on your your program. Uh, uh, she wrote the book. Uh, about the guide, the guide uh, for black males. Uh, I just can't think of her name right now. Uh, she was she was in Nation of Islam. Uh, anyway, uh, she mentioned about the idea of how incorrect the statement is falling in love, and I said that to say when you, when when a attempted parent. A non-white black person, especially a attempted parent, takes a child and place them into an environment where everywhere they look, they don't see a reflection of themselves. You may not be verbally communicating with that child, but you're definitely communicating with them in some of the most profound ways uh, that there is. 
and it could be very confused. It could be very confusing, but it would give off a message to that non-white black child that, hey, uh, these people are are uh, uh, something that I should uh, pay attention to uh, and place them as being better than me, uh, or 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 from a situation to whereas uh, uh, they are. Uh, I should accept uh, uh, that person uh, as being uh, uh, to uh, accept the idea of that I can be intimate with that person. It's all right to do so. That's basically what that parent is doing, especially, and I'm not saying that that's something that one should not do. You know, try to put your child in the best uh, institution for education that you possibly can. But don't just drop them in that environment without some, some some strenuous counseling of what you, what you are there for, why you are there, and uh, what is expected, what is the constructive outcome that's expected in that institution. And, and, keep, and keep a vigilance on that on a daily basis when you do that. Uh, and I, I, I mean, although this is a fictional story, I would doubt very, but I do know it happens in real life. I doubt very seriously that that is done with a lot of non-white black parents when when they do that with their child. Now, on the opposite level, uh, as was mentioned in the in the uh, the last reading, uh, a white person coming into an area where it's full of non-white people, they come with a purpose, and when it comes to sex. They come with the idea of not trying to uh, have any type of long relationship with, with that non-white black person, uh, but to just have sex. And they control, and like Malcolm X said in a speech years ago, they control that. They control the, uh, the, the, the uh, sexual employees, as they call as they, as, as, as popular being called now. They control all of that. Uh, so uh, that's my take on 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 that situation because that is real life in some cases, unfortunately. Uh, the question you asked about uh, uh, white female teacher, and you were specific white female teacher on this book, uh, being that I'm 60 years old, my only memory, my only constructive memory of a white female teacher. And I had very few. I can only I can remember only two. Uh, but the only constructive memory I have of a white teacher, white female teacher, was she was interpreting for us uh, Sly and the Family Stones uh, cut stand. I don't know. I don't know if you uh, know the song that I'm talking about. But it was it was a, it is a, it is a very was and is still a very constructive uh, song. And she was basically was interpreted, interpreting that to us as sixth graders. That's the only constructive memory I have of a white female teacher <laughs> in my whole entire uh, uh, educational, professional educational uh, venture. And I have a master's degree. Uh, so that's all I have to say on that. Thank you. Right on. <clears throat> Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you, you should go ahead and speak up now. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, 
I definitely thought it was interesting, and I know some other people have touched on it about how, um, like in the book, it is it talks about um, or this fictitious this fictitious story, how you know it's, it's subliminally better to be in white schools and not you know really telling your child how to operate within these schools. And um, I know I was you know in that same type of predicament. It wasn't necessarily a private school or anything like that, but it was a, basically a school where they're just mostly white people, and that's not really extremely well-off white people, but just white people nonetheless. And, you know, still having that and still not really, um, you know, being given some type of hint that they'll still practice racism in different ways. And I just thought that that, and just the father really not being able to, um, or the family unit um, definitely being dysfunctional and not being on the um, same or having the same mindset as far as, you know, area eight and these tragic arrangements. And I, I just think that that's kind of, I don't quite understand it. Like why would the father, you know, want the child, want the daughter to be or the children to be in a better school being i.e. a white school and not want the daughter to be with white people when you're basically subliminally telling her that um and i i guess um one thing that kind of stuck out to me was the whole hot cheetos thing how you know that's supposed to be you know comforting you know and all it even like you know just the the corner store type food i like this book definitely is definitely reminiscent of my adolescent and um i guess i guess that's all i'll add for now uh, thank you for allowing me to share appreciate that other uh folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have uh commentary feel free do we yes, have yes sir mr demi four Okay, uh, I wanted to mention uh, the way she referred to the police officer as 115. Um, You know, I'm for calling out these racists and identifying them in every way as possible. You know, so I can understand, you know, the writing style referring to him as 115, he's not really human, you know, to her, but I think proper identification is, is really, uh, you know, um, should be, you know, emphasized. Um, and <clears throat> I guess kudos for Mr. Rubin, the guy that runs a barbecue joint, you know, he's encouraging the young kids to, uh, continue the education and he's a positive uh role model in the community and i guess uh the whole idea of criminalizing the victim you know they're starting to you know i guess uh look into the lives of these victims and then um that always leads in the wrong direction instead of, like I say, identifying this police officer and then maybe even looking into looking into a lot of his uh, 
previous arrests and his behavior before then. I'll mute my line. Here, here for correct identification uh, and black self-respect uh, for Mr. Rubin. I'll second that. Do we have any other folks who had commentary? We miss anybody? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I have one more comment. Um, during the first section, I wanted to mention uh, uh, just with the, they have very, very precise um, precise labels and mentioning of black heroes and black figures. And I think um, this particular product is uh, demonstrative in the same way that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the, Mer Between the World and Me, was a kind of exposition of and surveillance of black life, this kind of, ex yeah, this kind of exposition to this crowd uh, in a way that I, I don't think is constructive, but I think it's very interesting the amount of attention white people play, pay to our cultural systems. So the brother, um, the brother of the main character, whose name is Seven, I just suspect that that, that name comes from uh, the nations of gods and earths. Um, I, and I just think it's very interesting it found its way here on the New York Times bestseller list. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I think they do a uh, uh, a lot of I think they put in a lot of work at surveilling our relationships and then reinterpreting them with those negative moral characteristics. So to kind of preempt us for the bad things that happen to these black characters, to kind of normalize their trauma throughout the throughout the story. Normalizing black pathology. Hmm. Uh, number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We have less than 30 minutes left in the program, so do not wait until the last minute. If you think you have commentary, go ahead, get your hand up now uh, and share if you have uh, any thoughts, questions uh, on the final section or any portion of what we've heard thus far of the hate you give. Uh, some of the notes that I took from this portion of the text. The portion where she talks about, I guess, the difference where she's relating to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and she's talking about how it was so different and the white people didn't want to come to her area and how could she invite them? And the one time it happened uh, that the one child got frightened because of the gunshots, like just <laughs> these types of passages. I could see why white people would enjoy reading a text like this. Uh, this is what they, it reminds me, I think one time Thomas in New York was saying on the job, workplace racism Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. He was saying that, on the job, he'll just lie and he'll just tell white people what they want to hear and be like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, you know, four of my best friends got shot and killed. They were selling crack and got shot on the very, uh, on the merry-go-round. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Happened every other day. Mm -hmm. And they just eat all that up. They love that sort of thing. That's what they normalizing black pathology. That's what they like to see. That's what they want to hear Anyway, uh, they work hard to produce monsters and monstrosities, as Mr. Fully calls it. But I mean, to just 
man, like, really? Like, I'm sure that that is the case, that for some black people, that is true. I know that that is the case, but I mean, there are tons of black people that is not the case. And I mean, there are lots of whites, man, again, that opioid crisis, there are tons and tons and tons of whites. There are no, there is no group of people on the planet more dangerous than racist man, racist woman, racist child. I think I've said this in many of our book clubs. They are the gangsters, not black people, uh, the dangerous folks to be around. <clears throat> Heavens, talking about guns. Come on now. Uh, next, where... I think we'd spoken recently, we've spoken a few times about uh, places where black people shop, having fencing and material to make it look like a correctional facility, uh, a prison, greater confinement. I think we've been talking about that and she highlights that for where the black people have to shop in this part of town. I think she also sees that as an aspect of racism, white supremacy, even though it's not being labeled explicitly as such. Um, let's see. The parts so yeah, you get the explicit commentary on Chris being her boyfriend, being white, uh, and this conspiracy within the family to keep this white. This is all I would classify all of that as keeping white people's secrets. Pieces of a puzzle, Renithia Tate, Pam, many others have talked about this, Mr. Fuller, keeping white people's secrets and not sharing constructive information with maybe the one non-white person who has the correct suspicion uh, about individuals classified as white to deceive him so that he doesn't know this pertinent uh, piece of information about his daughter. Uh, and I also thought it was important that the father who opposes this relationship, I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves if he finds out or if he gives any commentary to this uh, to just see you know, how that's depicted. Uh, whew, yeah, that's going to be very interesting to see how all that unfolds. But the father is not giving logic uh, where the paragraph where it says, at first, I thought my mom might say something about it. But she was like, he could be polka dot as long as he's not criminal and he's treating you right. That's standard rhetoric. You hear that all the time, right? Daddy, on the other hand, rants about how Halle Berry act like she can't get with brothers anymore and how messed up that is. I mean, anytime he finds out a black person is with a white person, suddenly something's wrong with them. I don't want him looking at me like that. That's not specific. That's not precise. I mean, it could have been as little as I know that dad suspects that that white person could be a racist. He will oppose this. He won't look at this as there's something wrong with me. He'll look at this as you're dating someone who could be a racist. It could be as simple as that. You don't even have to get into all of the details about why this is a tragic arrangement and what did Pam say and Renithia Tate said that and Mr. Fuller. You don't even have to get it. He suspects that this white person could be a racist. That would be it. And that would be sound counter racist logic. You just get this, you know, jargon, which is it makes it very easy to dismiss you as someone who is foolish. And in fact, I would not be surprised. Now, I don't know. She said Maverick was her favorite character, so I don't know. But it would not. What generally happens, someone who sounds like Maverick, you end up being painted as a racist. I don't know what's going to happen, how this will evolve in the book, but I will be very particularly given what she said in an interview this week about Chris and why he's in the book, man, I am very, very eager to see what happens. Does the father find out about this? Does he have anything to say about this to see how that will woo, continuing? Uh, the shoes. 
Let's see. I can put this with the shoes, uh, the music, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, the Cheetos. <laughs> I've eaten a lot of Cheetos in my life as well. Put that with red. Uh, when I read the portion about the shoes where she went into the specifics uh, that Kenya got Bazooka Joe Nike dunks and this is true to Miss Angie Thomas's heart because she did an interview and she said that she has a sneaker fetish she's a big uh, shoe fan and that's kind of something that gets attached to black people a lot as well and <laughs> what they call black culture uh, referencing black people in this part of the world the United States black culture is absolute rubbish uh, at best it is a really pathetic response to the system of white supremacy at bad. I'm just making a flat statement, but all of the things that people talk about with black culture, whether it's black and man, the food got mentioned in here, the barbecue and all of that stuff that will kill you uh, and have you being way overweight, which the author of this book is, and that is not fat shaming at all. I mean, just talking about basic health. There's a reason she's in Mississippi and Mississippi is notorious for having lots of people who are in bad health because of having bad food like exactly what got mentioned in this book and labeled uh comfort food no less and when i when i read that about those cheetos uh, the comfort food i thought of my flood situation because that was the exact same thing people come here have some have some cheetos here have some chai and it would be i would end up being in the exact same spot uh when being way way overweight and that's what happens to black people all the time. Uh, we've mentioned that when I was talking about my flood situation, you get these traumas. Uh, it's certainly for most of us, it's not going to be someone getting shot and killed on a regular basis, but just the daily traumas of white people mistreating us on the job. And as we move about in our world and coming back and getting bad food uh, at the little corner store, or if you have a food desert, wherever you can get it from, but getting bad food to try to compensate for feeling so bad and being violated on a constant basis and that just ends up totally eroding our health in a variety of ways. Uh, but that came up. I kept seeing that with the food and just you can lump that all together. Uh, all of the things that people associate the music, the food, uh, all of it, the handshakes, the hair, all of it, all of it, all of it. Rubbish, pathetic response to racism, white supremacy that came through when I exactly when I got to the spot about the shoes. Pathetic response to racism, white supremacy. Continuing. Uh, Black mental health, the portion where she was saying, I feel tears coming. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Not being able to be honest about how we think, how we feel uh, at times when we've just been devastated and we're not even allowed to feel that way. We have to pretend that that's not the case. I think that a lot of black people empathize with that. And that's another part of black mental health uh, that goes into why we end up being stressed and overweight and hypertension, high blood pressure, all of the above. Um I did not appreciate the paragraph. Uh, talk about unnecessary jab. I think Thomas in New York said that when the comment was made about Huey P. Newton. And I do hear black people make uh, less than flattering remarks about various members of the Black Panther Party frequently. And I just uh, equate that to uh, or conclude that whites have been extremely successful uh, with their uh, COINTELPRO counterintelligence program. Uh, they have been extremely successful with convincing many, many black people that the Black Panthers in general or specific members, Huey P. Newton or whoever it happens to be, uh, that they were just, you know, worthless punks, thugs, nah, you know, no one to to regard. I've heard that from a lot of black people like directly to my face. 
Um, but I did not appreciate and thought it was a totally unnecessary jab. The Kenya follows me. I grab the broom and go to the produce aisle on the other side of the store. Some grapes have spilled out from the from those ro- red eyed guys sampling before buying uh, to just have an overabundance. We're just in the first three chapters of the book of weed smoking black people on every other page uh six o'clock it doesn't matter what time of day it is like i just do not and this is a young adult book again like why do we have to have this emphasis on projecting uh black people under the influence of weed and alcohol and drugs at all times of day why and for young adult literature i just have to keep emphasizing that because that for me like just puts it in a whole nother category it's not like we're reading iceberg slim where you know hey we know this is intended for adults this is for 13 year olds like that's the this is what i want a 13 year old reading just to get page after page after page of high and drunk black people all times of day and night continuing uh The portion, I thought this was really unnecessary blackness. And this was another one where I said, I can see why white people would like a book like this. Uh, and just the anti-blackness when I read something like this. And when I, when I read this at times, I feel like, man, I've never seen Empire. But reading this at times, I feel like I have been kind of watching a little bit of Empire or Precious or the list I already read them. I'm not going to go through it again. But I, I feel like it just feels like that same sort of just black uh, just black trauma genre <laughs> content that I despise. Uh, but when she says, uh, Devante, not the type to be tied down. Anyway, Denasia walked over to start something, but the shots went off. We ended up running down the same street and I clocked her ass. It was so funny. You should have seen it. This is exactly the way that racist man, racist woman, racist child, that is exactly the way that they want to project black people. I do not think of black people as being that type of buffoon where there's been a shooting and you're scurrying away from the shooting and you see someone that you have a disagreement with and oh, I'm going to take this moment to knock her upside down. That is not my depiction of black people. I'm not saying that such black people do not exist. I know they do. That is not what we are aspiring for. That is not what I would. Yeah, I'm gleeful that that sort of depiction of black people spent 38 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes, I think that is great. And I think white people reading that, that is going to prevent another Trayvon Martin. Yes. Continuing, when she listed the celebrities that are up on the wall, and it was James Brown, pre-heart bypass, Bill Clinton, Dr. King, and what have you, very authentic. I know many, many black people. I think Pam even confessed that she used to be in that number as well, who are enamored with Bill Clinton, maybe less so now, but certainly for many, 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 many years in love with Bill Clinton. I appreciated the uh, authenticity uh, let's see. That pound cake cheese sauce. Yeah, already talked about the food. And I will. Yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Uh, we have other other folks who had uh, commentary they wanted to share. If we missed anybody who has a hand up who did not get to share, if we have any folks who have an extra comment, uh, or if I have said anything that does not make sense or been talking wacky. Uh, make sure you point that out as well. Yes, sir. 
Yes, um, I did want to make um, a couple more comments. You know, we weren't talking crazy. Um, Nike, uh, 100% owner of Jordan's Jumpman brand, 100% owner. Um, they need to cut her a check because she did a lot of promoting for them in this book so far. Um, like they need it. Um, $300. Oh, my God. Um, white people built a system on black people's trauma and black people being confused. And that's what this book is displaying. No one black saying racism, white supremacy, or racist. That's just showing me that they're confused. And it's a whole bunch of black trauma. And uh, I wanted to correct myself. Um, the black owner, uh, as someone pointed out, he has been so far unfloored black character. And there was another white character, a little white girl who went and stayed at her house, but they had a shooting down the street, so she had to go home early. So um, just more black trauma and um, more um, highlighting um, how different white life is to black life. Her parents came and picked her up immediately. The other white girl didn't come. Right. I even even with that, she said in an interview that she was in a car. Uh, some of this is kind of based on the author's experience. She went to a predominantly white school in uh, Mississippi and uh, she said she was in a car with three other uh, white females. They were going someplace and it was, oh, you know, we can't go over there because that's the ghetto. And Miss Thomas spoke up and said, well, that's where I live. And she said nobody really said anything else, and they just <laughs> quietly went about the rest of their business, and it was very awkward the rest of the way. But uh, from if if the three individuals that were in that car, race soldiers, white women, if they read this book, it would be, what is she talking about? See? Even she knows. Nobody wants to be over there. She knows exactly. In fact, she should have been like, that's right. I live over there, and I don't want to be around your crazy black people. See? You, you know exactly. You read your book. That's exactly why we wouldn't, didn't want to be there. That's the impression I think you would get from reading this book. I could be wrong, and we're very early. Three chapters in. If this, if this is one of those, if you read the first three chapters and stop, I cannot imagine how you would have a favorable impression of black people. Other May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to say real quick, I actually also had a correction. Um, I did remember one book that I read in high school. It was, um, I think it's called Makes Me Want to Holler. And I feel like I don't just, I know that we're still early on into this book, but I, I do remember specifically um, like the um, graphic sexual nature, at least in one part of the book, it makes me want to holler. And I thought that, you know, that seemed, I guess, for lack of a better term, risque, because the the little boy, the, the author was talking about, you know, the whole running a train situation. But um, but yeah, that, that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Um, I'll meet my line. Appreciate it. That's Nathan McCall. That's not marketed unless I've been misinformed as young adult literature. Uh, I did read that. That is pretty graphic and sexually graphic, violent. Uh, but I don't think that's marketed as young adult literature. Um, yeah. And I think to retired firefighter, I think he was talking about Dr. Shahrazad Ali earlier, a uh, member of the uh, Nation of uh, Islam, previous guest on the context of white supremacy. Uh, and any other folks have? That's correct. I think I said before on the show, um, when I was in school, we had to read Push. That's precious. 
Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm not aware of white people coming out and promoting uh, Dorothy Roberts killing the black body, Amos Wilson, Blueprint for Black Power, Dr. Welsing, Mr. Fuller. I mean, we've had a lot of black art, Renethia Tate, Pieces of a Puzzle, Pam. We've had tons, tons of black authors from all over the world who've written about racism, white supremacy. We've even had black authors who've written children's books about Nat Turner uh, on the program. I have not seen them get this sort of attention to go. And this is the book that we want to get to say, this is the book that represents the Black Lives Matter era addressing racism for a young audience. This is the book. Hmm. Any other comments folks want to get in before we conclude? Can I be here? Yeah. Uh, hang on one second, retired firefighter. We'll get you as well. The other caller? Uh, yeah, I'll, just, I'll be quick. Uh, you talked about how the there was a misrepresentation of the father and how he was using uh, incorrect logic in the text and his rationalization of interracial marriage or interracial relations or what, you know, whatever we call that stuff. But um, it's immediately when you said that, I was reminded of, of Du Bois when he talked about emphasis and omission, and that is central to the maintenance of white supremacy. Emphasis and omission to make children believe that everything in the world that was great was white. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Appreciate that. Retired firefighter, thank you for your patience. Yes, sir. I, I was just going to briefly say that uh, the uh, part of the uh, last reading where the, the two, I believe, white females was at the, uh, uh, I guess, pajama party, if you, if that's what it's called. Uh, uh, they, they if it, in real life, is a tendency that those examples of white supremacists end up being quote unquote authorities on black people. And what I mean by that, that metaphor author authorities is when there are some uh, Norway black people who are attempting to uh, take efforts towards uh, solving the problem. These are, the, these are the type of white people who would come, who would be promoted uh, as an opposition. Oh, wait a minute now. Uh, I uh, went over to the project. I stayed with my classmate uh, overnight uh, 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 at the projects. Uh, and so I have, an, I, I have a uh, bird's eye view understanding of black people and what they do and how they behave and blah, blah, blah. You know, that sort of thing. I, I've actually saw that uh, when I was working in a training part of the fire department where this this uh, uh ugly white female uh spent most of her time in the office uh speaking on on uh, speaking in, in terms such as that uh almost bragging about how she would come and spend the night uh in the uh in the projects that sort of thing and uh because because you know white people like that have an understanding and know that for the most part black people are not going to harm them at all <laughs> They were, we would harm each other more than we would harm a white person under those circumstances. And uh, just a thought that I had. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be here. Yes, sir, Mr. Demi Four. Oh, yeah. I wanted to make sure I brought up the 
part when the officer got right behind uh, Khalid uh, and then followed him until it was a dark part of town or, you know, some isolated place. You know, that, and then talking about the broken headlight, that's a pattern. And I was even caught up in that early in my life. You know, stopped, said it was a broken taillight, but then illegal uh, uh, stop and illegal search. And <clears throat> so it, it <clears throat> ended up in my favor because well, I was breaking the law, but it ended up in my favor because of that uh, stupid uh, uh, lie that they always tell about a broken taillight. And also, I wanted to mention uh, uh, some one of my Facebook friends had put on there, so all my white friends, uh, can you tell us about the first time you visited your black friend's house? <laughs> and she didn't get but couple of responses and I thought it was interesting because one girl said that oh she remember and she wanted to stay with that family forever and I was thinking you know what when you ask those types of questions you you could get any type of answer they're gonna give you the answer they think you want to hear I'll mute my line <laughs> that is a good one uh context of white supremacy I hope uh your wife is doing well and recuperating quickly, Mr. Demery Four. Uh, we will wrap there. Uh, if you have additional comments, you can, you know, make a note. This book is, it's not very long, but it's long enough that we'll be reading it for more than five weeks. So you will have ample time if you have additional comments to share as we proceed. We haven't even got to the quote unquote interracial relationship. So we haven't even got to the juicy bits. We just, had lots of trauma for three chapters this week. Uh, if you are listening to the archives, certainly this one, feel free. Write in. Hopefully we won't have a flood or any other disruptions so we can go through the book smoothly uh, every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So you can email untiljustice at gmail.com if you have commentary and we'll share as we proceed. Certainly if anyone, if you're listening to the archive and you think, hey, Gus, you are talking crazy. I read this book and I think, wow, it made me think I just have maximum black self-respect based on what I heard from the first three chapters of The Hate You Give. Well, then, yeah, you need to write something pronto and I'll make sure to read that next week for the program. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Compensatory call in. Uh, tune in. We'll review what went down the last seven days and uh, Sunday. We will have Cheryl Reynolds. Uh, she organizes in the state of Georgia. It's a project, Come Meet a Black Person, uh, where they encourage whites to come and talk about racism and sit down at a table and meet a black person. Uh, she'll be with us on Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that said, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, and We'll do it again tomorrow, same, well, 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific tomorrow. Uh, I will, I will again 
sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I think the book this evening, it didn't seem like a whole lot of good things happened when our various characters were in these environments with lots of narcotics and alcohol. It seems like lots and lots and lots of bad things happened and that tends to ring true to the reality on the plantation. So sobriety would be best. Maybe that's a message that young people will take away from reading this text. Uh, certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, you want to be super sober. You never know. As the book illustrates, race soldiers, they could be the ones pulling you over. Daniel Holtzclaw, you want to be able to make phenomenal decisions uh, to minimize the likelihood of you being arrested, mauled, raped, tased, killed, all of the above. Uh, certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, buckle up, driver, passenger, buckle up. Let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers with a badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us minimize contact with, excuse me, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.